Now you choose your grand. This you must feel inside. If he also chooses, you move quick, like I showed. You will have one chance, Jake. How will I know if he chooses me? He will try to kill you. Outstanding. Welcome to the Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast, Avatar Retrospective. Well, well, well. I'd say diplomacy has failed. Join Garrett. I didn't sign up for this shit. Matt. I know you think I'm crazy. And Adam. And you're a great warrior. Can't do this without you. As they review James Cameron's billion-dollar science fiction franchise... The enemy is out there, and they are very powerful. Are critics unfair in calling the first movie as blue as its on-screen characters? Is this true? Does that first film really have the lasting impact of being the biggest money-making film of all time? It's pretty impressive. And does the latest entry have any chance of topping it in quality and money grosses? I see you. The answers to all these questions and more, coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. Okay, this is video log 12 times 2132. Avatar, released December 18th, 2009. Budget on this. Already there's controversy. It's anywhere from 240 to 350 million dollars. Box office, hold on to your seats, people. 2.9 billion dollars. Damn. And this was directed by the one and only James Cameron. Boys, we are kings of the world. We have finally arrived at Avatar. Adam is getting his wish as it is time to review Avatar. Adam, we discussed it a little bit last week, but why are you pushing so hard for us to review this movie? There's a new one coming out, and that, you know, that perfect timing and tie-in for it. But it's also one of those movies that it's been, what, 13 years, 14 years since it's come out. And for a movie that literally changed the physical theaters, it's amazing how maligned this thing has become over the decade plus since. But also, it's Avatar. And with a new one coming out, and we're at least getting two. We don't know if we'll get three, four, five. Disney says they are, but after they acquired it from Fox, we'll see. But with a sequel coming out with the biggest movie of all time, Endgame, yes, Endgame got released multiple times. Avatars got released multiple times, but the biggest picture of all time. And I've not been able to sit and discuss James Cameron with y'all. And Garrett, we go back to discussing James Cameron a lot in our youth. So. Yes. It'll be mm-hmm. great to be able to, for me to finally be on a film of his and to be able to go through it. Matt, were you looking forward to uh, discussing this part of the film lexicon, Avatar? So I have a lot of mixed emotions. First of all, I was very disappointed in both of you when I was making the schedule and the word Avatar came up. And I would not have the opportunity to espouse about the animated Avatar The Last Airbender TV show. <laughs> <laughs> We did that last year. <laughs> go, go back to that M. Night movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you mean the thing that shall not be named and shall be stricken yes. the record. But who knows? There will be a live action show that Netflix is doing for next year. So maybe I'll have my opportunity to do that as a Patreon show or something. I was also disappointed because I felt really old for two reasons when I thought about this. Number one, I was 16 when this came out. And I think it was one of the first things like I physically drove myself to go see 
along with a bunch of other people. And the second is, speaking of James Cameron, that ties into the very first retro Garrett and I ever did together. Go by the Wayback Machine, maybe not all the way back to Judgment Day. Garrett calls me on a whim. So this is how this whole story started, for those of you who don't know. He calls me out of nowhere, and when I say call, I mean text. And when I say text, I mean through Facebook, <laughs> saying, hey, I need, a, I need a ringer. I appreciate you stepping in to do an interview. How would you feel about doing a bunch of new The Terminator movies? Because Genesis had just came out around that time. I'm sorry, Genesis, excuse me. I think I was right the first time. How do you feel about doing it? I said, okay, I'll just do it. And for those of you who want to know, because it's been a long time, I will never go back and listen to those shows, and I'll tell you why. It takes a long time to build chemistry with somebody, and it was about as awkward as you thought it would be, because as you can imagine, being almost 10 years ago, Garrett and I have a much different rapport now than we did back then, so mm-hmm. I will propose, if we ever get a new Terminator movie, I'm going to pause for a sec so all of you can stop laughing. <laughs> I think we should redo Terminator with Adam, and we'll do it properly, the three of us, if that day ever comes. So, Avatar in and of itself. Was I excited to go back and watch? No. And I'll tell you why. Two reasons. Number one, I would not be in a theater, and I was curious how this would hold up on a, you know, I have a good-sized TV in my living room. I have a good sound system, but having only seen it the one time in the theater and not going back to it in over a decade, I was just curious how would the staying power, because I do have fond memories of going to see it, would that carry over into me being considerably older? And B, not having that ambiance and the 3D and all the all the different peripheral things that went into it. So I was not excited because also this thing is damn near three hours long. And I should have kept my fucking mouth shut because the new one coming out is over three hours long. Three hours, ten minutes. So that is a long-winded way of probably the mm. longest intro I have ever recorded for one of these shows to say the shortest answer of no. I am in a summer boat as Matt. I was really, really sucked into the hype of this back in 2009. I was in the midst of going to college. But when I went and saw it, I went with my girlfriend at the time, and we went to an IMAX screening, and I thought it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. I took my brother right after that because he wanted to see it. And once again, I came out of there thinking, wow. Cut to a year later, the Blu-ray comes out, and my girlfriend's mom was in town, and we decided that we would go pick up the Blu-ray and we would sit in our living room and watch the movie because her mom had never seen it. And me and my girl at that time, we were excited to show it to her. Movie comes on and what you don't realize is when you're not in the midst of an IMAX screen, when you're not in the midst of a 3D vision, when you're not in the midst of the world that Cameron has created, you are stuck with the story. And I had never felt like I had so much egg in my face when it came to a movie because after it was over... <laughs> All of us kind of with each other like, okay, that wasn't as good as we thought it was. I have not revisited it since that day in 2010. The other reason I was interested to kind of revisit this is I have never seen a movie so successful, and Adam, maybe you can attest to this. I've never seen a movie so successful yet not have one cultural zeitgeist going. I, there's no holdover from this. When I go to cons, I've gone to plenty of cons since 2009. I have seen maybe two people dressed up as avatars. The the thing does not have any real cultural zeitgeist. Would you agree with that? I would until they built Pandora at Disney World. And even still, it's amazing because that project started and stopped. And, And imagine this. One, it was not a Disney property, and Disney was building a land 
Animal Kingdom. They broke ground and started working on it, and then James Cameron basically said, ah, fuck you guys, I'm done working with you. And the project stopped completely and then mm. and then started up again. So absolute crazy. But yeah, from that way, I will say that when it comes to, I mean, you'll see some people, mostly Instagram models want you to go to their OnlyFans, dressed up, you know, as some of the Navi, but I don't feel like that's out of the realm of James Cameron. I look at Titanic, which was highest grossing film, and then a year later was a joke and a punchline. Part of that due to James Cameron's antics himself. But I will say, yeah, I mean, this does not have Comic-Con cachet every year where people are dressing up. You don't see a bunch of RDA soldiers walking around with Navi. You don't see head tails of Navi like you do head tails even of fucking Star Wars characters. So, yeah, for the highest grossing fi- – and yes, that's going to come up. Yes, it's the highest grossing film. No, that does not measure a film's quality. Absolutely not. And for everybody saying, oh, the tickets were more expensive. Well, guess what? Those tickets were still about 40% less than a regular ticket is today. <laughs> so it does not measure a film's quality. But it is amazing that it does not stand out as something where people are clamoring for it. There's a lot to unpack there. So I'm going to begin by saying... I like all of James Cameron's movies up until Avatar. When this was coming out, I had the utmost confidence in it. I think he's a phenomenal storyteller. I think when it comes to smart, intellectual, well-done, clearly defined characters in genre filmmaking, I think James Cameron is one of the greats. And it's funny that the backlash against this movie, or the blue lash, if you want to call it that, it's like Titanic started almost started almost immediately, maybe even been less than a year. I think the moment, because this came out so close to Oscar season, yeah, propelled the backlash immediately. Because when you have a movie like this that is populist entertainment, which it was, you cannot dispute that at all. Look at the box office numbers for one thing. Everybody saw this movie, and if you claim you did not, I think you are a blatant liar. Mm-hmm. Two months later, it's nominated for Best Fucking Picture. Anytime that happens, people get upset when a movie that costs $5 in a Snickers bar gets nominated for Best Picture. So the fact that a movie that was made for the price of buying the state of Louisiana is nominated for Best Picture, that backlash is going to happen on both sides. But it's Heaven amazing. forbid a genre film. Yeah, God forbid a science fiction movie. Even with 10 nominees, they still nominated a pure futuristic science fiction movie with groundbreaking technology. And we'll talk about the technology. There's a clear moment where James Cameron said, oh, I can make this movie. But the the cultural aspect, Garrett, that you touched on, I think that is amazing that you have a movie that made that much money across all demographic, kids to considerably older moviegoers. And you're right that you don't have the Comic-Con stuff or it's not discussed in film class, whereas you have a movie like outside of Star Wars, which is its own sci-fi bubble. I think the popularity of Star Wars will never never die. Look at a movie like Black Panther, where that movie's almost five years old, and it is still a movie that touches both the people that are represented and people outside of it. It's still talked about. It's still culturally relevant. And I don't just say that because of the Marvel machine. I think that is a movie that stands on its own and is one of the most important blockbusters, both culturally, commercially, that we have seen, I would say, since The Dark Knight. So, yeah, especially socially as well. So it it is amazing that Avatar doesn't have that staying power, which is why I'm going to be very curious 
how the second one does commercially. This will be the real test of are we underselling its cultural relevance. Now, Matt and I, we've discussed how we saw this, how we felt about it. Adam, what about you? You have been the one who was pushing for this retrospective. You saw, I'm guessing you saw this opening weekend. It must have had quite an impact on you, huh? Sure as heck did not see this opening weekend. Oh, wow. <laughs> the reason is, at this point, people. <laughs> but 2009, so, you know, I had a one-year-old. So it sure as heck was not uh, easy to get out and see. But I do remember in January, so first or second week of January, so it was out a couple weeks at that point. And I think the talk was, hey, this movie did okay. I mean, I think opening weekend it made, what, 60, 75 million? You know? Yeah, it was like 77. Yeah, so, you know, good, not 200, not 250, mm-hmm. but just like Titanic, it didn't go down week two, or barely. The Titanic literally did. <laughs> and you started hearing about it and started hearing about it being groundbreaking revolutionary. And this was the first movie that Laura and I went to see in a theater after the birth of our first child. So it, mm-hmm. it holds something special there, the way that Tron Legacy holds something special in my heart because I watched it in a hospital room with my son. So the first movie Laura and I went and saw in a movie theater afterwards. First movie I saw in 3D, only to be eclipsed by a My Bloody Valentine 3D a few weeks later. <laughs> That DVD came with a pair of 3D glasses, James Cameron. <laughs> yes, it did. <laughs> so it was a couple weeks after that I saw it, and we saw it in theaters more than once. I think we only saw it twice in theaters because God knows it wasn't easy to get out. But I think my brother, who has a child similar in age to ours, was like, yeah, you know, we want to see it. So we, we babysat. Then they babysat for us. It was an IMAX. It was IMAX 3D. And... It was visually, it was technologically everything that it was made out to be. For everything we're going to say about this movie, technologically, it was that a film that earned its hype as technology-breaking, changing type of film. And I was really glad I got to see it in theaters. I was really hoping for this discussion of this film, I was going to get a chance to see its re-release that they did recently. And unfortunately, yeah, September. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately, I did not get to see it. I regret that. But... I've seen it multiple times at home since. I do have the DVD. I got the collector's edition, which is a three Blu-ray set. Mm-hmm. Has the theatrical, has the theatrical clean version. Which, remember, James Cameron signs off on DVDs, so these things are not done without his permission. And that he allowed a clean version to be edited blew me away. Mm-hmm. And then it's also got extended edition and a collector's edition. So that's the version that I have, and I've seen it multiple times since. But yeah, this was... I was, I was going to say, you've seen it a lot of times since its actual release. Yeah, this is probably every other year. I think I've probably wow. seen this movie six to seven times in various type of forms. If it's on TV, it stays on. When we've gone to Disney World and we've gone a few times, that land, one, it's too small. I think they purposely are waiting to expand it. It's too small, unfortunately. But it has the best motion simulator ride and that includes rise of the resistance it has got the most amazing ride that i've ever been on wow. with flight of the banshee it is phenomenal but it's i love being in that world i like walking on the bioluminescent plants that they have there's something about this world that i feel connected to when i've gone to visit it it is new yes it's disney world yes it's big fuck you i enjoy it uh, just look at it. I have a shoulder banshee. I have wow. It, it's a puppet. It, it control it sits on my shoulder. It's got a magnet to stay there. That my children named Sigourney. <laughs> More from Finding Dory than anything else. But yes, it's named Sigourney. 
literally, there's a shoulder banshee on a perch sitting on my entertainment center in my living room. So Avatar, it's in my home. Yeah. That's incredible. All right, Matt, you mentioned Star Wars. You know, going back to this world, going back to this film, and looking at it, I saw so many similarities to Star Wars. One, its first film wasn't given a chance to be successful. You spend that much money, especially in 2009. I mean, nobody was spending $350, $400 million on a fucking movie in 2009. Cameron himself offered to cut his fee if it's a flop. He said, look, I will not get paid if this thing doesn't break even. Lo and behold, of course, we all know how that turns out every time Cameron does that. So this first film is a massive success. And the other similarity I saw is his director seems to have devoted the rest of his directorial career to telling stories in this world. And he's returning to it after a 10-plus year absence. For some reason, that really stuck with me in going back is Cameron, say what you will. I mean, he devotes himself, doesn't he, Adam? You can... I remember, and it's, and it's funny, because there's an, a great story that Jeff Loeb tells about his film being kicked out of theaters because there was this little boat movie about to come out, and, hey, we need more prints of yours, please, because this thing is going to flop. And then two weeks later, going, hey, we took every single theater of yours. Um, oh, wow. And that was the one with, uh, um, what's his name, the fire movie. <laughs> Howie Long? Yep, thank you. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes, Jeff Loeb put that movie. He did that? Yep. Holy shit. Uh, you Jeff Loeb is a hack if you don't believe me. <laughs> There's your fucking proof right there. <laughs> but you can't bet against James Cameron. Say what you want. Is he an asshole? Yeah, he sure is. Well, what I appreciate is there's a lot of interviews recently, and there's going to be a lot more coming out, because he at least gives himself to these interviews when he's got a film coming out. That way he only has to do one interview every 10 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he gives himself to a project. He invests into it. It's his baby. He puts time, effort, and development. He develops so many things. He, like Lucas, creates companies to create technologies for some of the mm-hmm. films that he wants to do. And that is something astounding. That is not something you see a lot with many filmmakers in Hollywood anymore. I appreciate that he calls himself an asshole for some of the ways that he used to act, that he feels he's at least calmed down a little bit nowadays. But when it comes down to it, you cannot bet against James Cameron. I thought Titanic was going to flop. I thought it was going to sink. We had those discussions. Oh, God, yeah, I mean, we, we did. We would get those magazines, and me and you would sit and talk about it. We're like, there's no way this fucking movie's going to make money. Sure as shit, it becomes the biggest money maker ever. It's, yeah, and I think you and I went to – I was home. Yeah. I, I was yeah. home from the Army on Christmas Exodus, and we went to see Titanic. Mm-hmm. I mean, just like this one. Yes, there's a lot to be said about, oh, my God, this has been so long in development between Avatar and Avatar 2 when we discussed that one. But you know what came out a year after this was fucking Inception. And if you told me Inception mm-hmm. 2 was coming out in two or three years, I'd be excited for it. So I I'd don't... I'd run to quote Iron Maiden. <laughs> you know, but also Alien to Aliens, seven years. Mm. Terminator, Terminator. Sorry, what? Terminator, seven years. That's the ultimate sign that James Cameron cares about Avatar because he had every opportunity, and I would say the right, because of how bad Terminator has fucked up since he stopped directing, for him to come back and say, no, let me show you how it's done. But he's always been the guy to say, oh, I will openly endorse the next Terminator movie, no matter how fucking shitty it is, (laughs) but not direct them. And he'll double down on Pandora. Because let's not forget, he was also at one point going to direct Alita Battle Angel. Yep, that was in my notes. Yeah, he had written that along with the first draft of this in the mid-'90s. 
and he gave that over to Robert Rodriguez a couple of years ago, which I thought I thought I actually I just rewatched that. We went up to Colorado to visit my mom, and it was on, and I was rewatching it since first time since theaters. That movie's actually better than I gave it credit for. I actually really like that movie. But you're right, he could have directed that too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of things he could have directed. Got mm-hmm. like better appearances in Divorce Court. <laughs> I think this man has any money left with the amount of I know. <laughs> I guess that's why he needs his money in movies to make $2 billion. Yeah, right. Yeah, and you know what? And he still has that bit of an asshole in him. Yeah. There were stories from the set in 2009 where he would actually, if your cell phone rang on set, he would nail it to a fucking wall. He had a nail gun all set to nail your cell phone. I mean, that he still has that in him. But at the same time, you got to respect the guy has a vision and he wants to get it out there. He's been like this since Aliens. There were stories from that set, big time stories. If you have a making up book like I do, you read a ton of them. But his vision is undeniable. And say what you will, I remember when those Oscars were in 1997 when he won Titanic. And Adam, I believe I was watching it with you. And when we went up on stage and he said, now I'm king of the world, we both looked at each other like, what the fuck? Because I think you and I were both rooting for Good Will Hunting because me and you really liked that movie. And Titanic just completely swept everything. We're like, fuck! (laughs) It was literally the iceberg that just everything fucking... Mm-hmm. But I will say this about James Cameron. I think he has a very good sense of humor because if you listen to him talk about Piranha 2, oh, he yeah. always talks about how it's the best flying fish movie ever made. Because <laughs> I don't think he's ever forgotten where he started. And he's always had this mindset of, I need to prove myself with every new project. Like a Terminator, it's, all right, I'm going to take this bodybuilder and make him this unkillable monster. You look at Aliens, you know, sort of doing a complete 180 on what the entire first movie was built upon. You look at, you know, the abyss. So between storytelling and special effects, he's always been someone who keeps pushing the envelope. And that's why I think he gets from his fans, which I consider myself one, always the benefit of the doubt, which I have going into this new one, too despite my thoughts on what we're going to talk about. But I've always been curious, now that he's in his late 60s, I really want to see him do something with someone else's script. It's sort of the the Christopher Nolan thing I've had lately, where I want to see what he does with someone else's idea or, or project. Not to say that his ideas are always bad, but I think it'd be really interesting. I'm amazed he's never done Philip K. Dick. And speaking of that, you bring up a good point, because, yeah, when it comes to James Cameron, like, I have history. Like, I remember my father sitting me down and explaining to me why The Abyss was an amazing film. But my father was a diver. He loved scuba diving and trained me that way. And because he loved that, we watched Terminator together. I'm one of the ones that are going to say, I will take Terminator 1 over Terminator 2 five days out of the week and twice on Saturday. But my love of James Cameron, as much as I want to jump in the film to blast the guy, I can't hate any of his film. I'm always going to say, he puts it on screen and I'm going to see it. And until he's puts out a dud, I think he's earned the benefit of the doubt. I appreciate the work he's done in the seas. I'll watch his documentaries going deep sea to the Titanic and his underwater documentaries I think are phenomenal and I think he's got to love beyond just what goes on in theaters. So, absolutely. When you have one director make not one but two movies that break box office records, yep. you have no choice but to give him the benefit of the doubt. Yep. So let's talk about the development of this. He, like I said, he started writing it around the mid-90s, but he realized, you know what? <laughs> around 99, he was like, there's no way technology is going to be able to enhance my vision of this. I'm going to kind of put it on the back burner. A bit. You, Go ahead. You hear that, Lucas? 
technology wasn't ready yet, so he waited. <laughs> we'll talk about that next year. We act like uh, we issue with those movies. <laughs> <laughs> but you watched another movie that we'll be talking about in the future by the name of Lord of the Rings, Two Towers. And when he saw Gollum appear on screen, he's like, all right, technology's all set. And, you know, it has to be said, we look at this world that we're going to be talking about. Every single thing on that screen, from plants to animals to everything, he pretty much did an encyclopedia of this entire world. He did. He brought in linguists to create a language. Yeah. He brought in botanists to create plants. He was creating a complete new world out of nothing. No, I don't want to say out of nothing, because he did take things that exist in reality. And the land that we see, a lot of what was created is kind of what's under the sea, and he brought it to the surface which is going to be funny when we discuss next week mm-hmm. that we go one to see because we see a lot of the sea anemones here on Pandora. But, yeah, the amount of work that he put into this reminds me of somebody like Guillermo del Toro where he wants to build out a world, and he doesn't want to half-ass it. He wants to mm-hmm. feel like he's building an entire universe and wants every little thing. He wants the details. He wants the fauna. He wants the language. And it's what creates the cost to skyrocket but I think it's also what pays back dividends in the end. It's also, if you're looking for supplemental material, there's literally a, like, 200-page field guide that I think it's called, like, Avatar, a confidential report on the biodome of Pandora. Like, it is literally a book you can purchase that is all the material about this world. And I think Del Toro is a great parallel for the amount of work that went into this movie conceptually. But it's just funny that, you know, you look at Lord of the Rings came out Two Towers seven years before this, and just how much motion capture technology advanced in those seven years. And that was really the ultimate sticking point for me was, speaking of Star Wars, that goes back to Jar Jar Binks. He was the first Mm -hmm. character where you literally swap out an actor for a digital creation, going to Gollum, which I wish he found a way to put Andy Serkis in this movie. Yeah. Just as sort of a nice tribute. Because Gollum, we'll talk about this two years down the road, still looks really good, but there are those... I think the scenes are starting to show now more than they ever have, especially in Two Towers. Return of the King, because he's not in it as much, because that movie is about as long as it took the Titanic to sink. I was excited to go back and watch this, just that seven-year gap. It's 13 between this and now. So I was wondering, how is technology going to look? Because even since then, we've had really pioneering effects since this. You had Inception a year later. I can't think of any other really big ones. I mean, to look at what they did with Roland as Thanos. Yeah. Something like that, where he was fully integrated into a scene, changed over, but he still did the capture. The Apes movies. Oh, that's a good one. When I think of effects work nowadays, a lot of stuff I think of is practical. I think of stuff like Mad Max Fury Road, where it's all the stunt work. Yeah. And that, I think of Ex Machina, where it's, you know, her, uh, the practical work on that. I think the last sci-fi movie that made me go, wow, as far as the world, was the Blade Runner sequel, where I was like, holy shit, this looks amazing. I haven't seen that, but Dune, Denny Villeneuve, I think, does create that same type of, yeah, this is. All right, Adam, do you have anything else to say before we uh, start off with the plot? Let's head to Pandora. Head into Pandora. We start off with a dark screen, some chants, and an overview of Pandora, with the voiceover by none other than Sam Worthington. Now, as you can imagine, Worthington was not the studio's first choice for this. Or James They Cameron. were, um, well, I said studios, not Cameron's. Of course, they were flipping the bill for this gigantic gamble, so I think they had every right to be worried. Yeah. 
Their first choice was Matt Damon. And supposedly, there was an offer laid on the table with 10 percentage points at the gross for Damon, and he either turned it down or never responded. From what I was reading recently, Cameron wanted him so bad as well that Cameron said, I will give you 10% of the gross, which, Mm. think about that. (laughs) And think about tie-ins when your property became a Disney park, how much that would pay forever. (laughs) And, yeah, he said, oh, my God, I'm not going to do your Blue Cast movie. I'm doing Born, which was pretty damn after that with Hawkeye. (laughs) Uh, well, well, there's also, yeah, like that movie that he was probably working on was the one they turned into the Jeremy Renner movie. <laughs> no, it was actually oh. the the one that came out in 2009. It was, I think it was the Born Ultimatum, I think. No, that was, was the one that was, was working That was 07. Well, he was, it was one, he was actually doing one of them at the time. Yeah, yeah. They were there was it. also a second person that they were looking at. I did some digging on this. They were talking to Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Which, yeah. knowing me, I would have much rather watched that. For a multitude of reasons, although he would have been in blue form, so I, I guess it. Uh, that so could you have been, you could have blew him? Yeah. But, <laughs> but he basically said that he didn't think he was ready to take on a project of that scale. And he said, and I quote, if you don't listen to yourself, you're going to meet serious trouble. And what did he choose to do instead? Prince of Persia. <laughs> there you go. Uh, it's a shame that we could have had a good actor playing Jake <laughs> Can we talk about this now? I have nothing against Sam Worthington. He is, to me, what everyone accuses Hayden Christensen of being in the prequels. <laughs> he is the definition of blank slate and inauthenticity. I gave him a pass for Terminator Salvation because that project went through so many hands, mm-hmm. and he wasn't even supposed to play that part initially. So I'm like, all right. Everyone sucks in that movie. When Christian Bale gives a bad performance, you know that movie sucks. Peter, did he just watch Blade Runner and listen to Harrison Ford's narration and go, I'm going to do that through the entire movie, not just my narration. I was wondering how long it would be before Blade Runner would come up. He does not <laughs> modulate. He's not a good screen presence. And you really need that for a movie that is both this long and with characters that are purely archetypical. You need actors who can elevate these characters who are very thinly drawn. And that's going to be a criticism I have for this movie. And I don't think I'm saying rocket science. This is a pretty common complaint that some people make it work because they're larger than life and they bring something to these characters. Not all of them work because there's one that I think is overdoing it to a fault, sort of the inverse of Sam Worthington. But James Cameron, who got quote-unquote good performances out of Arnold fucking Schwarzenegger, Mm -hmm. could not pull... And I don't just talk about Terminator. Schwarzenegger is great in true life. Yeah, yeah. Every time he worked with Cameron, he was great. It was when he branched out from him that he wasn't good. I think this is entirely on Sam Worthington. And I've seen nothing in his career that leads me to believe he is a good actor. Yeah. To be fair, the reason why Cameron pushed for Worthington is because of his quote-unquote everyman quality. And the fact that this guy comes to this planet and saves the whole people, that would be kind of inspiring. Kind of like the way Michael Bean was in Terminator. You know, he didn't look like a big hero. He was taking on the big Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he was an everyman, and he, that's why people liked him. But so I, we're stuck with this guy. I understand that thing of the everyman sort of actor, uh-huh. but there's been so many examples of what I would call everyman actors who could have really brought something to this role. Now, I know I'm going back in time, but, you know, I think of guys like Peter Weller. Yeah, I think of actors like Richard Dreyfuss back in the day, who are sort of everyman. You know, they're sh- kind of schlubby or shoddy if you've seen RoboCop before he gets put in the suit. But mm-hmm. I think you need someone like that who has both average looks to them, but can really draw you in as a viewer. It's a, it's very fitting 
that Jake Sully is crippled because his performance handicaps this entire movie. I will go ahead and say before you go, Adam, he wasn't as bad as I remembered. I remember thinking, my God, this is one of the worst performances I've ever seen. There are some scenes later on in the movie I will definitely call him out on, but I wasn't too harsh on his performance while watching this. Overall, I think I would give him a C plus. Oof, I see what you did there, and I'm going to take it down. Uh, (laughs) My version of this movie, first off, starts off on Earth. I watched a longer version. I watched the collector's extended edition. I'm the only one of us willing to watch that longer version of this. And at least there it starts off with Jake on Earth at a bar. He's already home being paralyzed. We see him fighting a woman that's getting harassed in a bar, and we kind of learn right off the bat that he's going to fight for those who are getting picked on and shit. And then we find the RDA show up and offer him a chance at something else. So for a movie that's got like 16 or 18 extended minutes, six of them are a completely different opening to the ones that you all watched. Now, Sam Worthington, vanilla ice cream calls this guy bland. (laughs) I want to like this guy, and I'm sure he's nice. I'm sure he's pleasant. I don't mind Terminator Salvation. I think there's some really good thoughts in that movie, but oof. He ruined the Titans franchise, Clash of the Titans, and the sequel to that. If there's a weak link in this movie, other than tropes, it lies at Sam Worthington's incapable acting skills. So we're hearing that he's having dreams of flying, and we have a close-up on his eye as he wakes up. And I thought the blue was reserved for the Navi. Nope, Cameron is pushing it right in your face from the start. He exits this thing, and blue is everywhere. <laughs> yeah, this, this Apparently he just really loved this color. This man uses blue like Francis Ford Coppola uses orange. You know what well, he does it a lot in Terminator 2, too. You watch Terminator 2, there's a lot of blue in that as well. Oh, yeah. The difference here compared to something like the underworld films is I can still see in this fucking movie with all the blue that's going on. But this opening shot takes me back to aliens with the cryopods opening up and Mm -hmm. giving them, Hey, you've just woken up. This is how long you've been to sleep. Now go get some food. It's alien. Exactly right here. But I remember in theater, I don't see it here. You woke up as a audience member with a deep 3d shot because this, vast hallway of all these pods opening up was immense. It's not that way at home, but it's still gorgeous. I think this is the only 3D film film that still looks good at home. It doesn't look 3D. No, you don't have that immersiveness, but it doesn't have the shitty quality that so many of them did. Yeah, I remember this shot of him waking up and moving in this pyrogenic chamber. This was the first instant in the IMAX theater where I was like, wow, this is pretty amazing looking. Yeah, I think when it comes to scale, there's very few blockbusters over the last 20 years that can match the sheer magnitude of these sets. And I know a lot of it's visual effects, but just that wall of pods or yeah. the size of the landscapes or the proportions of the mech suits when Jake's on rolling around. I think this is the kind of movie that IMAX was made for. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. think on that front, it still holds up remarkably well. And there's very few effects that I look at and go, eh, that doesn't quite hold up nowadays. No, it's beautiful. I'll say one of the things that I liked, and I appreciated it so much that I took a note, so many films, when they're put onto Blu-ray, they keep an aspect ratio where I lose 30% of my TV, even though I'm watching Mm -hmm. it on a big-ass widescreen. James Cameron, who, if there's not a Blu-ray release of his film, I believe that's what's going on with True Lies, that it hasn't been released, because he won't supervise the release of that Blu-ray. This fills my screen. 
but I don't feel like anything is cut out. And I appreciate that so much because I resent putting in a Blu-ray that I'm excited for and losing so much of my screen. Yeah, doesn't that bother you with the last two Dark Knight movies? Yep. How the aspect ratio keeps changing. I think IMAX is one of the great tools if it's wielded correctly. And I think James Cameron is one of the few people who has not just utilized it well, but it's borderline perfection when it comes to cinema as an immersive experience. It's not just visual, because you've got to remember, IMAX speakers are considerably more fine-tuned than your Apple mm-hmm. multiplex, which a lot of those suck to begin with. You can hear the static of just yeah. of a blown-out speaker. That can take you out of a movie directly. But here, or I should say back in 2009 when I saw it in the theater, it's one of the great examples of surround sound I've ever seen. It almost feels like it's coming from the speakers in your seat. So we're hearing about the fact that his brother Tommy was shot while on duty, and his mission was reserved for him. We cut to a ship... And Cameron loves lingering on these ships, doesn't he? This is Kubrick to a T right well, here. I was thinking of uh, Star Trek, the motion picture that starts. Yeah, that's that a fucking 10-minute mm-hmm. opening of that. Yeah. <laughs> we get shots of soldiers getting ready for battle as they land in an industrial portion of Pandora. As Worthington says that one life ends, another begins. Uh, they, they moved <laughs> Nothing may, gives me more joy than Matt sighing in the middle of a plot summary. I, I imagine there, there's certain parts where his line readings, it sounds like Tommy Wiseau directed him, where it's like, what the, it's, what yeah. have I said the words as I wrote them? <laughs> I was thinking, is this voiceover's done? And he just pops up again. They give reason for it. He's giving a live journal here, a video journal, but I'm just like, man, enough of them. They move down the ramp as he tells himself that he can pass any test they put in front of him. He rolls down in a wheelchair as we see what looks like a vehicle from Aliens. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was a power loader there, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Well, this whole setup with the Galactic aliens. Corporation, yeah. this is straight out of Aliens, although it's nowhere near as interesting or sophisticated. Yeah, I mean, we're about to meet a direct, might as well be a descendant, you know, from that movie here in a minute. Two, if you want to count that. I know the one you think of, but there's a second one. He gets called Meals on Wheels as he wheels past the other soldiers. We then hear Stephen Lang say that you're not in Kansas anymore, and if there's a hell, you might want to go there for relaxation after you're done on Pandora. This speech personifies this character. It is cheesy as fuck, but Lang delivers it well. And Matt, last time we saw him was in Manhunter. We saw him in a, in a wheelchair himself getting rolled down, but God, I cannot take this serious, but Lang sure wants us to. He's going for it. That's Ike Clanton from Tombstone. <laughs> He's definitely going for it. I think he is the one who understands the the fact that these characters are so thinly drawn that I have to exaggerate as much as possible. I think that's good yes. for his performance, but it's bad from a writing standpoint because it makes him just a warmongering general, which to me is always the least interesting kind of militaristic villain, where I'm mm-hmm. like, why are you such an asshole? This far in the future where it seems like humanity, we've destroyed the planet, but it's not for war reasons. It sounds like it was purely global warming or environmental turning on us. So I think he's very good for what he's being directed to do. But there's a part of me that was thinking, man, imagine if Cameron got Schwarzenegger. Well, he wanted Michael Bean. He was going to go Michael Bean at first. He decided against it, though, because he thought it would be too much of an Aliens reunion. You know, they, people would see Sigourney yeah. Weaver and Michael Bean. They were like, it okay, this is an Aliens all over again. we got to go somewhere different. And I'm with you. I think Lang really goes for it. But I could definitely see Arnold here. Yeah. For He's sure. also, Michael Bean doesn't have the physicality for this role. No, absolutely not. Especially now, but he could get there. fucking Emperor Palpatine. I don't know if you've seen him lately. <laughs> well, 13 years ago, he could have done it. He was in the divide that year. He, he definitely could have done it. I mean, like, as far as, like, stock. Because Stephen Lang's a big guy. 
not he's not Arnold, but yeah, I remember watching this and going when I was sixteen because X Men Origins had come out this year, and I'm like, maybe he's your Cable. If you ever? Yep. Oh, nice. That was the exact thought. Like, yeah. Not that they picked Josh Brolin's a, a good choice too, but I was like, now Stephen Lang has become he's that blind guy in those. Don't breathe. Is that what it's called? Don't breathe. Yep. Oh yeah, yeah. like a yeah. badass now. So he's part of the Liam Neeson mold now, where just because you're over sixty doesn't mean you can't fight. I think Stephen Lang understands that he is in a comic book movie and is acting as such. He's at least the most charismatic human character, and he's the one that's most fun to watch. He does what's asked of him, and he, I mean, he's setting up a lot. Yeah, he's cartoonish, but it works for what that character is. It's amazing because you look at the other stuff that he's done, and it's nowhere near this. But, man, every time that he's there, you pay attention, and he kind of steals the scene from everyone around him. And later on, he's got some good lines. He's fun. He's cartoonish in a way that this movie kind of needs. He has some lines, but I wouldn't call them good. I think he makes them good with the way he delivers them. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. This whole, yeah. oh, we're yeah. not in Kansas anymore. I mean, that is a terrible line, but the way he delivers it. Yeah. It's sort of the Arnold thing where it's like, I don't know if yeah. would or if it's just because he said it so convincingly that I have to go with it. Exactly. <laughs> He's got like a puppy dog head tilt, the way that he delivers some yeah, stuff. He does. He's got a presence that makes you like him, even though if there's a villain, it's him, but he's sure as hell fun to watch. We go inside the lab as Jake explores it, and the actual avatars, which mixes human DNA with the Navi. He goes up to his Navi representation, and he says that it looks more like his brother than him. <laughs> and then we're seeing this voiceover is the actual video log that he's putting together. And he says that the reason they wanted Jake was because with his DNA, he can link with his brother's Navi. I, so. I dig this at this point. We're 13 minutes, well, and I got an extended edition. We're 13 minutes into the movie. We've met the main character. We've explained the planet, or it's a moon. We know kind of the ecosystem. We've met the bad guy, and we've installed the exposition device that we're going to have with this video recording diary that he does for as long as this movie is being that we're building a whole new world at this point it's feeling fleet yeah and this is where i have a narrative issue with the movie i don't buy or i I should say i don't feel the movie does a good enough job explaining that they're not going to give sully any field time basically with this avatar because the other guy mentions you know i've logged 500 hours of time yeah i would understand that if you know the avatar body was only good for a short amount of time or, you know, the Navi were ready to declare war, and we got to quell this down before shit hits the fan. I don't feel the sense of urgency and why they're... It's the why now problem. And I, I do think that's an issue. And, and the fact that when he gets in the Avatar, he has minimal issues. Or if you could have spent that time during cryosleep saying, you know, spent the last five years of cryosleep downloading all this information. Right. You could have science-talked your way out of it. And I think the, the movie also needed... I would have liked to have seen more explanation of what his brother was actually doing. Although mm-hmm. that scene with the, the funeral where they burn him in the box, that is the only bad prosthetic in this movie is that fucking wig on Sam Worthy. <laughs> 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 it looks like they ran over a raccoon and just put on another head. So we're hearing good science is good observation. Now, what do we think about the layout and the designs of these ships? We'll talk about the world here in a bit, but what about these ships here? It, it does have a little bit of an alien's quality, as we mentioned, but I think that Cameron has done a really good job of creating his own world. Absolutely. I love that they feel real. He works so much with R&D departments of military that it's it's a futuristic version that he's just bringing to life. As we discussed before, Denis Villeneuve does a great job, and I think it's something like Dune. Those are meant to feel very alien, where, no pun intended, where these are meant to feel like 
human designs just in the future. And I think he nails that fucking just perfectly. Yeah, I think the fact that Cameron has experience with hyper-advanced military technology and aliens, he applies that here. There's elements of that in Terminator when you see the future. So I don't think he's doing anything here that is beneath him. I think that this world does feel fully realized, which is amazing because for all the exposition there is, it's not a whole lot about when they started cultivating it. And yeah, it's amazing where the details are explained versus what is oftentimes shorthand writing. Weaver's character of Grace wakes up with a CGI cigarette in her hand as they talk Navi. I love Sigourney Weaver. I have been on record as saying she is my favorite actress. I find her engaging in this. Originally, he was going to go with either Jodie Foster or Jamie Lee Curtis. Those were his original choices. I definitely can see both of them playing this character, but I think Sigourney Weaver is pretty good in this. I enjoy her every time she's on screen. What about you guys? Yep, big fan. So glad she's in this. I could see either of those other women in the role. Jodie Foster specifically, though, would make me think of Contest, yes. I think. And obviously Jamie Lee Curtis, which relies. But I think Sigourney Weaver is just fantastic. Performance-wise, she's great. The movie establishes her as just this hard bitch. And then she turns into the ultimate tree hugger. I think it's two polar opposites. Yeah. I feel like the movie never knows when to rein their characters in. Because so many of the characters, when they make these big pivots, because the Giovanni Ribisi character will do that later on, where he has sort of a similar recommendation or moment of recognition where he becomes a completely different character. That, again, most of my problems with this movie stem with the writing. I wish James Cameron had a co-writer on this. I I genuinely do. There's no one credited. Maybe someone came in to do Punch-Up. But I think she's good. Sigourney Weaver is always a great presence, and I'm still mad at Marvel for wasting her in The Defenders. That's something I will never get over. Oh, horrendous. The two that you mentioned, I could see Jamie Lee Curtis more in this role than I would Jodie Foster, just because I think Jamie Lee Curtis has a mean streak to her that Jodie Foster, sometimes it feels like she's putting on a persona. Part of that is because knowing what we know about Jamie Lee Curtis based on these Halloween press junkets. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, is helping to inform this, but I have no issue with Cameron bringing Sigourney Weaver back, because Aliens was almost 25 years before this. You're right. The arc they give her is so bizarre. She's starting off here, and she's saying, she is a bitch. She's just like, she's saying, we don't need you, we need your brother. Yeah. I mean, that is a really fucked up thing to say to this guy. She has no empathy whatsoever. None! But, you know, she's also given lines like, on them without having the courtesy of calling it rain. Oh my god, this dialogue that he has here. Was this really this bad in Titanic? No. His dialogue I, in this is atrocious. So I watched Titanic not too long ago because Christian had never seen it. And I wanted to show him the magic of Billy Zane's acting in that movie because it's... it's <laughs> uh, the, the dialogue, it's simplistic, but it's also old-fashioned in a way that reflects the time period. This is future. Yes. And I'm not saying I need a lot of lexicon or hyperbolic language collect. This movie has fucking unobtainium as a major plot point and word that is mentioned, so I'm not expecting super advanced. No, it's a MacGuffin, Matt. Yeah. Be honest. Well, not, yes, but I'm not expecting... It's fucking vibranium, okay? You want, you want God yeah. on Spencer, that's what it fucking is. But he took 12 years to make this movie. Someone should have told him that people are writing much better scripts in the 12 years. I get waiting for the technology. Like, I get the sense he did not punch this script, because this feels like a movie, everyone calls it Dances with Wolves or The Last Samurai, which it, there's no, I don't think there's a single argument you can make against that statement. But it's straightforward in the way that those movies are, where the human characters are boring as shit, and the interesting stuff is with the indigenous 
tribe or race. And it's another movie where it's you have the Navi who have lived here for centuries, and all it takes is a white man to show them how to fight back and conquer this thing we'll see later on. So I think the writing is still my biggest problem with this movie above all else. I think it's a, it's a flimsy script. I think it's too focused on the broad ideas and the technology. And I don't think that's an excuse, because the year before this, we had Iron Man and the Dark Knight, which I think sort of created a sort of a shift in the way blockbusters were being written, where we're like, all right, we can do stuff that challenges an audience, promotes a certain amount of intellectualism. And I think people were kinder to this script for a, yeah. for a very clear reason. 2009. Here's the blockbusters we had that year. X-Men Origins Wolverine, which we talked about. Uh, Terminator, Salvation. Terminator Salvation, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. These are all really bad sci-fi movies. And even Star Trek 09, which is enjoyable as a summer movie, it's not a well-written script or a well-thought-out story. This, I think people were kinder to it in comparison to how fucking bad sci-fi was that year, outside of District 9, which is a considerably smaller-scale movie. The good news is he has the writer of Aliens vs. Predator Requiem helping with this one, so I think we're in good hands. <laughs> it does. Adam, do you have any way of defending the writing? Me and Matt have pretty much demolished it here. What are you feeling about the writing of this? No, I think there's a big difference to be had between story and script, and some of the lines that are written are, it's like he wrote the script five, six, seven years before, and never revisited it. Just like, oh, here's a script I wrote way before. Read the lines I wrote. And, yeah, I mean, some of them are just, oof, Nelly. Yeah, it's that story versus writing thing. And yeah. Cameron has shown, you know, look at Aliens. That has some great lines, and those characters are really well-defined, even though you don't know much about them outside of Ripley. But nowadays, it's like the David Goyer thing, where it's like you can map out a story, but either you don't care enough or you don't, have that ability in you anymore to go, okay, A goes to B goes to C. And I don't think that's his focus. I don't think he's bringing somebody in to say, here, write the script, let me look at it, give you notes. He's not giving notes to somebody. Well, he's going to be future-wise. But on this, he was preoccupied with the technology for good reason. But somebody needed to update the dialogue in the script. He should have called Shane Black. No one should ever <laughs> call Shane Black. <laughs> We discuss it at a later time. <laughs> we see Giovanni Ribisi's Parker practicing golf, and Grace says that she doesn't want to draw her head drop out like Jake on this mission. Again, just a straight-out bitch. We see Unobtainium, which is what they're looking for, so they all need results for them to survive. Jake says that he has no time in the field, but he read a manual. <laughs> oh, so Giovanni Ribisi. He literally polarized her from the exact same fucking character, and... I don't think I've ever liked Giovanni Ribisi whatsoever, and I think he is hemming up in the wrong kind of way, where you get the sense that no sensible corporation would put this guy in charge. Not for somebody that looks 16. Yeah, he doesn't really command authority. I think he, he's too easily, even for something that is this cartoonish. Because the Paul Reiser character in Aliens, which is the obvious parallel, yes. he's got a mean streak to him, when it's revealed that he's really got ulterior motives to go back to... Alien Homeworld. They do the opposite here. He's got the opposite character arc. But it's not convincing because, A, because of the writing, and B, there had to have been better actors that Cameron could have cast. Certainly someone more believable. This is where you put Michael Bean. Yeah, I was thinking of, like, someone like a, I think someone like a Rob Lowe. Hell, Bill Paxton. Why the fuck not? Who put him in charge? (laughs) But yeah, somebody with a commanding presence. Because, yeah. 
who is going to listen to this? I don't care if you're the boss. He's snivelly. He's whiny. His deliveries just. I mean, the only thing I've liked him in is Boiler Room, and I have, don't like that movie for him. He's snarky as fuck. He just right. he doesn't command what his position should. This guy's running this whole fucking operation. This guy, there's no there there. Yeah, I would buy it more if he was like the middleman. He's like the Dwight Schrute, where he's like, yeah, you have a title, but you really don't hold any authority. Paul Reiser, you get as management. This is a manager who's doing this job. You don't get that out of out of Gio or of Bonnie Rubisi. It's very mm. made very clear that Stephen Lang reports to him. Yeah. Which is yeah. Awesome. That dynamic is so weird. Yep. Jake goes in the pod and lets his mind go blank. As Grace also goes in, Jake wakes up as a Navi, and he's getting used to his limbs. He's off balance, losing control of his tail. But he says he just feels great, and he walks out of the lab. He interrupts a basketball game, and then runs through a field of blue leaves. And this scene of him running in the dirt in 3D looked amazing. Oh, yeah, the scene they stole right out of Forrest Gump. Pretty much, yes. <laughs> I hate that it loses the fact that, unless you're paying attention, that this guy's paralyzed. He's got legs for the first time. Yeah. And we don't know how long, because that's not explained. But... This movie could be more than one film because of how quick it goes through certain things. We're like 20 minutes into the film. <laughs> yeah. But is it goofy when he wakes up and he can immediately work this thing? Yes. Because there should be something to be said of phantom limbs and how this is going to cure that. Shoot, there should be some empathy with Sigourney Weaver saying, you know, hey, that phantom limb syndrome you have, we have a way through that. James Cameron's not interested in the shit that really could flesh out Worthington here. But when he's running, when he's going through it, it's a pretty damn cool moment. I really like it. I love Sigourney Weaver showing up in a Stanford fucking shirt of all things because she went to Stanford. And I knew that when I saw this movie then, and I can't help Mm -hmm. but smile. It's such a cheesy, such an inside baseball thing, but fuck it. It hits me. So I don't like that Worthington's impetus, you know, trying to fix his legs. We're told that, but we never feel that. Largely because, A, his acting is terrible. But, B, it should be a moment that lingers more that he has functional legs for the first time in God knows how long. Or you make it a struggle for him to work the Avatar because he's handicapped. Yeah. That should be a problem being handicapped. It's not an obstacle for him. Yeah. As far as the effects go, they, they look good. As far as the Navi, you totally buy they're there when they're mixed with normal people. They get the size. I don't know how tall they're supposed to be, but they clearly are considerably taller than your average human. I was amazed how years later, and I've seen this multiple times, but I, I'm trying to be critical with this watch. I'm like, okay, how bad is this going to look now? And it's amazing that these effects hold up pretty fucking well. It's seamless. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, with the exception of what Matt pointed out with the wig earlier, there is nothing I can put down as far as the effects go in this movie. Nothing is dated, feels dated in this. It all still looks marvelous. And they do a good job of making the Navi avatars look like the actors without going so far that it's that uncanny valley thing. I'm trying to think of, like, when you do this the wrong way. Sort of the, when they brought back Schwarzenegger for Terminator Salvation. Oh, yeah. That's so clearly off that it's inauthentic. I think here it's the perfect medium. Of anything else, it is just astounding the effects work that Weta and James Cam was able to, to deliver. And, Matt, you mentioned the scale, too. We've complained about that sometimes. We talk about Transformers, some things like that, where you don't really feel the size. You feel that these guys are taller than that when he's going through this basketball game and he's taller than everybody. I mean, it's such a 
interesting thing that you can see Sam Worthington in this avatar. Now, Sigourney Weaver's looks weird to me. There's something about her that I, look, I thought more of, speaking of Alita, I thought more of that character than I did of Sigourney <laughs> Weaver as I was watching this. But other than her, like everybody else, Zoe Zaldana, which we'll get to, all of them really look like the actors if you look deep into them. Yeah, but they all have universal features to where they feel like they're all part of the same species. Correct. Absolutely. But yeah, you're absolutely right about the the scale, and that and you know better than anybody because that's you at Lollapalooza. You stand out over. <laughs> And a huge credit to the way that they shot this film to get that in frame. You know, that can't be an easy way with the way you're controlling the angles and what you're putting up on screen that you really feel it. So Grace catches Jake playing with his braid, to which she says, don't play with that too much, you'll go blind. (laughs) This is a joke I picked up on in this viewing, as the connection this thing makes isn't sexual, it's a mental link. But that line did make me smile. you got to remember, I was 16 when this movie came out, so that... And I subconsciously they yelled, look- Dad, I'm over here. But <laughs> <laughs> They go to bed as Jake wakes up out of his pod. We then meet helicopter pilot Trudy, played by Michelle Rodriguez. It makes sense, because this movie is ultimately about family. Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I keep trying to forget that series. Well, we're covering the new one next year, so you better I know. Better I know. Up quick. But I, I think she's fine in this. I like her in this, too. She fits this character beautifully, actually. Yeah, I yeah. mean, she's Vasquez Jr. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. Trudy explains to Jake that they need those ships because they're not the only things flying around out there. We cut to Lang, who tells Jake that he has some heart showing up in Pandora. And I guess this could be classified as bonding, as he makes fun of the Avatar program and asks Jake to be a spy on the inside. The only thing that would have made this more homoerotic is if they were playing volleyball. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this double agent thing, I mean... It's never believable. Yeah. It never go... uh, uh, I mean, you would be better off just putting a tracker, putting a hidden camera, and getting the info that way. Because Sam Worthington can't play one character, more or less two conflicted characters. He has two shots. Yeah. It's the same thing in Terminator Salvation, because he's playing technically a double agent for Skynet. Yeah. And two shots at this character the same year, and he failed both times. <laughs> I guess this would have worked better if this was a reveal, or he starts out with the military, and this is mm-hmm. purely a military operation, and he's not tied to the Sigourney Weaver thing at all. That's it. We never see him as a soldier. Yep. We're told that he was once a Marine, but we never see that, and there's no brotherhood we get with the soldiers that are there. Even a scene of him missing that and wanting to get that back in, we're told he wants his legs, we're told he wants that. But like a Kmart Blue Special, he can't sell it. No, this man couldn't sell Rick James a bag of crack. Now, Adam, Adam, you're invested in the story, but you are really ripping on Sam Worthington. Who would you like to have seen in this? I think Matt Damon... Could have been great 15 years ago. Gyllenhaal, I think, would have been amazing. But I think Gyllenhaal today would have been amazing then. It's tough because I don't know. Worthington can't sell it, but he's not who I'm here for. When I get emotionally invested in this, and I do get emotionally invested, it's not from him. I know it would have been stunt casting, and I don't just say this because he was in Terminator Salvation. Christian Bale could have done it. Absolutely. Yeah, he could have. Yep. Jake agrees as he tells him that he takes care of his own and dangles the carrot of if he does this for him, he'll work on giving him his legs back. So Jake goes back on the inside as we're seeing blue pterodactyl things flying around. (laughs) I I don't know what these things are called. 
They're Ekron. I, I, I okay. fucking knew he'd have the answer, too. <laughs> I did, too. They're Ekrons or Banshees. <laughs> or yeah, Banshees. When, okay, like Eric and I take our significant others to Disney a few years down the line, Adam will be there as a tour guide explaining on the Avatar shit. Because I, I still haven't been. I have not been to Animal Kingdom since they added that whole Pandora section, but I've seen the queues for the rides. That alone makes you want to go. They walk around the jungle and non-aggressive prolomeres come into view. Jake can't take all the sample gathering, so he explores. He walks past some awesome-looking flowers, and then a creature comes into view. Grace tells him not to shoot as the armor is too thick. She then tells him to hold his ground, which he does, and then asks, Who's bad? That's right, bitch! You can tell this was made in the 90s. Absolutely, dude. (laughs) Fuck. Oh, my God, James, the dialogue here. And you also have an actor who is not a macho guy whatsoever. No, he thinks he is. It even feels more inauthentic. Jake makes a run for it as the creature chases him, and Cameron does do some nice slow shots as he goes in a tree and then unloads on him. You know what this fight reminded me of? It's one that we're going to be seeing in the Ewok adventure next year when they're in a tree and they're fighting off this creature. (laughs) As someone who has never seen that, though, the fact that you just mentioned that makes me wish that. (laughs) If you swap out the Navi for Ewoks, does this movie still work? (laughs) Adam knows what I'm talking about. Yes, I do. Jake gives up and then jumps off a cliff into the water below. So now he's separated from the group as he makes his own spear and climbs a tree. And this is when we meet Nateri, played by Zoe Zaldana for the very first time. Zoe Zaldana is the character and the actor and the performance that, if I could say there's one that's really good, is here. I love her in this movie. So, two things. One, that... Scene you were talking about, all I could think of, speaking of ADP, is fucking Predator with Dutch. Oh, oh yeah. When he's the last right. one left and he jumps off. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. that same thing. So I have a weird thing with Zoe Daldana where I can't stand her in Star Trek. I think she is the weakest person by far. And I didn't like her as Gamora until Infinity War. But this is the first time where I'm like, oh, I actually think she's a very good actress. And I think this is the best mocap performance done by someone other than Andy Serkis. So one of those examples of you cannot just say, oh, she's aided by the mocap. No, she's actually, she's emoting. She is dynamic. She is perfectly tribal. I think she does the dialogue better than anybody. She is the MVP of this movie, along with James Cameron and the VFX team. And I can't believe I'm saying that, because I had just seen Star Trek earlier that year, and I'm like, she didn't even feel like she was in the same movie as everyone else. Whereas here, I feel like everyone is struggling to get up to her level that she interacts with. She is so expressive. She gets some expressions with that mocap going on. That uh, It's unbelievable how good she is. Every emotional beat she brings just resonates with me completely. Like Matt, yeah, her Gamora's always been flat with me, but I think Marvel has failed bringing the Gamora from the comics to the screen. They just painted her green, let her go. Yeah, she's fine in Star Trek. I agree. She's, she's okay. And the amazing thing is, if you watch the making of, you might think that they bring out the expression through the digital work. No, that is her. And every time that emotion is on the face, when you watch her mocap, it is amazing because she's bringing just a heightened sense of that to the performance. It is amazing how well that translates as a Navi. It is unbelievable. But yeah, she is by far the strongest point of this movie. The only other actor I think that delivers some real strong emotion is CCH Pounder. But Zoe is phenomenal in this movie. She's the only reason I'm really curious to watch the second one. I'm worried as to how much she's going to be in the second one. I got a bad feeling. 
you think you think they're gonna kill her? I do. Wow. Oh, oh you think they're gonna fridge her? Yep. This one of those times where I hope you're wrong. Oh, I really, yeah, I, I really hope I'm wrong because I will. I don't want to watch on that I'll die. How's he gonna do six or seven of those movies and not have this character in them? Two words: scheduling conflicts. Because I'm pretty sure Marvel kept her busy. Because That's I mean, true. Grant, she's barely an Endgame. So outside of that, and Guardians, has she done anything? Because not like they've made another Star Trek movie. No, she did. Uh, mm-hmm. Was Columbiana, which was fun. Yeah, that was 2011. But Guardians is done. She's free. Because she's listed in being an Avatar three and four, but this might be a Harrison Ford, Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher thing where they listed all three of them. Yeah, I don't look at those anymore. I don't trust them. Yeah, we'll see. Meanwhile, Jake's team gives up looking for him as Jake gathers. What is this, honey? What is this he's putting on this stick here that's right here in our faces? It's kind of like Planet's version of honey. Yeah. He uses it to light his torch to scare, I guess these are wolves on this planet. Yeah, the video game flammable device. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With these uh, look like jackals or space hyenas. They're not scared, though, and they gather around him as he fights them off until Natiri comes and takes care of the rest and hisses at them to get away. I can't imagine... Being in this mocap suit and not seeing these creatures in front of you and having to hiss like that, it just goes to how expressive she is and how good she is in this suit that it comes off as good as it does. Yeah, because they really did. They built, you know, almost like a little obstacle thing where they were jumping and mm-hmm. sliding and take that, Holly Berry. She puts out Jake's fire and puts one of the creatures out of his misery. I do love how this ground just glows and each step is seen as they step out of where their feet are. I remember this in the IMAX screening so well. I remember just looking at that and then looking at the person I was with. I was like, holy shit, that is amazing. It it has such a cool feel to it when you're in IMAX. He definitely thought this rolled out, didn't he? He did. And to me, this landscape looks like the parts underwater that glow. The fish and, and the underwater plants that do have some natural black light type look to him. And I feel like that's what he brought to the surface here. Natiri says that this is not a time to celebrate as Jake is just a little baby flailing around, not knowing what to do. She also says that he has a strong heart, but according to her, he's stupid. You're right, Natiri. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that was in character. I think she said this guy. No, I don't either. <laughs> I think that was the one time camera letter improv. <laughs> She tells him to go back to where he belonged. They then look up and see what I can only describe as flying jellyfish. They land on them and then fly off. These are just, again, you can't really explain it. Like, I have a decent-sized TV, but there's no way without having an IMAX screen in front of you, you cannot feel exactly how it feels to look at these creatures on screen and see the way they're flying around in front of you. It is amazing to see. Yeah, that immersiveness doesn't exist. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm like you, Adam. I am regretting not going to that re-release just because I wanted to kind of feel being in that world again. Well, you got two weeks to do that. She tells him to follow her, which he does, until they run into her family. She tells them to back off, and Jake is still oblivious to what is going on around him. In-laws, am I right? (laughs) (laughs) They take him to a tree and meet her father, who asks, why is he here? He replies that the alien smell is just too much. Jake reaches his hand out, but that's not really received that well. Her mom comes in, and her mom is CCH Pounder, correct, Adam? Yep, sure is. That's a man. Okay. All right. I I wasn't sure exactly which one she was, but now that you mention it, and that was the performance that you gravitated to, I remember seeing her name at the end of the credits, and I kind of put two and two together, because this mom here, CCH Pounder, I guess, is really good. Her mom comes in, and he tells her that he was a runner for the Jarhead Clan. (sighs) 
boy, did that line land. Well, she replies that it landed. It landed like the Grayson family out of Gotham Circle. <laughs> <laughs> no, because that so would have got an emotional reaction. <laughs> she replies that there's a chance that sanity can be cured. So now we're seeing Jake and Terry. They're swinging from trees and land in, what are they using, hammocks? And I want to reiterate, this film is fucking beautiful. In the 13 years since it came out, like I mentioned earlier, it doesn't look like it's aged a day. But like every beautiful nature show I've ever tried watching that I didn't have to watch for biology class, there comes a time when I just get bored of looking at the scenery. And since there is nothing of note going on in this story, the scenery is what I'm stuck with. And guess what? I'm bored as shit. Because it's so so much a part of what's going on, I enjoy seeing it. I'm looking for little things around still. I haven't seen this so many times. So the detail on the trees and the leaves and things like that, that I'm noticing that these little paws glow when they touch them to close them up. I'm still paying attention and I'm still liking it. I get what you're saying because so much of the dialogue and that is hollow, but I'm still engaged with the overall. I'm going to come out and say it. This movie's too long. I find a lot of this, everything that's not while he's an avatar, bores me to tears. I could sink the Titanic with the amount of water that would take that would bounce from my eyes. I wish there were more conversations between Sigourney Weaver and Sam Worthington where they get to know each other. You actually learn his backstory. That would help expand this world outside of the National Geographic on Pandora that I feel like a lot of this is. I feel like there are certain parts where it feels like a tech exercise more than an actual story. They wrap themselves up as Jake is brought out of his avatar state. Now they're in a dinner setting, much like aliens, as Grace is telling stories about their journey together. Robesis Parker, meanwhile, is pushing for Jake to find out what the blue monkeys want, as he says. Parker and Krawich, they're pushing for Jake to convince them to move off the land in three months, or they will mow it down. And Cameron himself has admitted that he is a flat-out tree hugger. And we got to get it out of the way, boys. Fern Goalie, right? Yeah. That's where we I mean, are. Yeah. Avatar, uh, Dances with Wolves, Last Samurai, like, there's always, there, there's only so many stories you can tell. There's a, mm-hmm. there's a finite amount of stories, but there's an infinite amount of ways to tell them. He got the first part right, because clearly all these machinations that we've seen before done better. I'm not a Dances with Wolves fan, but I think it's better than this. Maybe one day when we do that red show, I'll see Dances with Wolves, so I can't make that comparison <laughs> yet. But I hear it. Um, and fucking, I love Ferngully. Goddamn, Robin Williams is fantastic in that. Um, As a Tim Curry. (laughs) But Star Wars is how many stories that we've seen before. So, yeah, I get the complaints, but it's a complaint in a rearview mirror because Lone Wolf and Cub. What do we got? Fucking four TV shows where it's that exact same story right now, and they're all immensely popular. So, yes, it borrows. I think the problem is it's not elevating the story parts of those. It's elevating the effects, but the story is by far the least interesting part of what's going on. They go over who is what in the Navi village. As he goes back under, Grace tells Jake to not do anything unusually stupid. Jake is learning how to hook his braid up to an animal, or the bond as it's called. He can't seem to get it as Natiri's family shows up to deter them. Meanwhile, Jake shows Qualwich the tree, and he's spotted giving intel. And then Grace says that their next stop is the floating mountains of Pandora. They go in a helicopter, as Trudy says, that you should see your faces as you're going over here, because it's beautiful up here. And I gotta say, again, these floating mountains, amazing. Absolutely. I'm gonna keep praising the scenery. It's gorgeous. This is when it's, you know, starting to pay attention, taking notes. I got an issue with this flux causing so much problem with all of their instruments, 
but doesn't cause any problem with the instruments it takes to be in your avatar body. So and it's just a little bit of inconsistency. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. A little bit of inconsistency yeah. as well yeah, that's going on. That was one of my questions where th- there's a part we talked about where he's left overnight. So how yeah. long do you stay in an avatar body for you? I don't know what you'd call it, go into withdrawal or you, you space out. Does your avatar body ever expire? What was that, Garrett, you might know this. What was that movie with Bruce Willis where he surrogates? Yeah. Maybe something like that where, where existence, where you plug yourself in, but if you... Where's the line? Like, if you die there, do you, does your body just shut down and you go in a coma? That was my question. Yeah, right. if you die in this body, would you die as a person? It's just every time you go to bed, you wake up. Because <laughs> it seems like that's all it is. When you fall asleep in your avatar body, you wake up in your human body. Mm-hmm. For all the... And with all the expo- yeah, with all the exposition they give in this movie, they never explain that, and I always found that odd. Yeah. And I've got two different... I know you're going to roll your eyes and be like... Really, what a shock. I've got two different comic series that they've based off of this as well. No shit. the hell you say? <laughs> but one goes through Natiri's brother and his story. The other one follows Grace and the later CCH Pounders character and the school mm-hmm. and everything that happened through there. So stories that it's amazing that were actually part of the deleted scenes in this that they cut out that they fully fleshed out in comic series, but so much more that they don't touch on. That shit should have been in the movie. That's the kind yeah, of stuff I'm agree. complaining about, that where you need to flesh out the characters, not just the world and the movie. Oh, yeah. The why Grace isn't allowed back in the village matters so much more when you watch those scenes and figure out what happened. It's tragic it was cut out. Cause there's so <gasps> those much scenes of, really confuse me. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's so many other scenes that could be. Because she's got a relationship with Dentiri that existed mm-hmm. before that's not in this version of it. So there's lots of other stuff you could have cut and kept that in. They go in and set up camp, and Jake lets loose in his voiceover that he knows Grace knows that he's giving intel, but she's just putting on a face for now. Natiri again tries teaching Jake how to bond. He watches her fly around Pandora on this banshee and then logs in his experience as days are starting to blend together. I think we're seeing that him because they did 80 takes, so James kept day five, and we got 800 more scenes to do. Figure it the fuck out. We're seeing Jake struggle with a bow and arrow, and then get called a moron by Natiri as he tries learning the language. Again, I don't think that's character. That's own either. We're learning about the flow of energy and spirit of the animals as Grace pushes him to see the forest through her eyes. And again, Matt, this is what you were explaining earlier. All of a sudden, Grace is the tree hugger here. Like, all of a sudden, like, she's in love with the world and she wants Jake to thrive. We didn't see that before. Yeah, it's some, it's a change that happens overnight. Oh. Or, or if it didn't, we should have seen that because based on his log, which I guess Matt Damon did play this character in The Martian, it's the same, <laughs> yeah. the same goddamn thing. <laughs> but for the amount of time that they spend here, it's got to be a considerable amount of time because he keeps shaving his beard. We know they're on a plot. Yeah. They have a 90-day like window. Yeah, it's 90 days. But yeah. these are the scenes where the movie should sacrifice its pacing a bit and really let these characters feel lived in and talk to each other. Because there's also the guy from Dodgefall. That's all I know him from. Oh, yeah. Where, <laughs> yes. he, where he feels like an afterthought, and he should be like his confidant or his Jedi master to explain how to do all this shit. I remember him in Shark Knight is where I remember him from. <laughs> yeah, what a, what a weird three movies. Dodgeball. I know. Shark Knight 3D, which looks like shit in 3D. <laughs> I saw that in theaters. Me too, because it was PG-13. <laughs> <laughs> 
Adam, how are you feeling about the way Grace has pretty much changed as a character here? It didn't seem as abrupt to me. Maybe it should looking at it, but I always feel like that this has been an environmental thought, so it felt like that was just part of Grace. Is any of this explained in those comics? Like you said, she has a relationship with Natiri. Is there anything else that would explain why she hates Jake at first, but all of a sudden has a liking to him? Everything with her has been science and okay. science and science, and he's not. So it solely was she's got an adverse reaction to the military because she's just butting up against that nonstop. And I think that's Sigourney bringing that same fight she had with aliens you know, where I'm not going to fire a gun, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that. And I think this time, James Cameron's going, okay, I'm going to let you play into that. His brother was a scientist. He's not. He's a fucking Marine. She hates the Marines. So, unfortunately, mm-hmm. we don't get them warming up to each other. It's just, okay, now they get along. There's those touchy-feely scenes that we would normally get in a movie aren't here. You see it, but, God, it's not believable. Yeah. And I don't think it's a failure on her part. I think it's a failure on his. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm not blaming her. We're seeing them go underwater and even play with the lily pad bugs here, or whatever these things are. (laughs) He impresses her with a queen kill, saying that now he's ready. More training ensues, this time on vines. And Jake says, let's dance, as he wrestles this creature and finally hooks his braid up to it. I do like that this creature has two different sets of eyes. That is an amazing touch that Cameron added. I think there's, what, there's like a dinosaur eye and another animal eye on this creature. These designs are amazing. They really are. If you want to watch a documentary, which is about as long as the movie, of just him creating all these different creatures and bringing in biologists and stuff to figure out how they would work, literally them doing, like, computer simulations on the wings to make them believable so that we believe it as people watching it. It's just, it's something to behold. The reason that all the land-based creatures have six limbs, because the Navi originally, he created them with six appendages, not four, but then he did not it was a problem in rendering, but they looked beautiful, so now you figure all those horses, all those other things, they have six, so he kept it elsewhere. His work on these creatures is fucking just second to none. Does he nail their phones to the wall in that? I'd, I'd see it if, it was, if he did that. <laughs> <laughs> Jake flies with the banshee, well, actually falls with it at first, until he yells, shut up and fly straight, which is what gets it on track. And again, the stuff of them flying... Just gorgeous. Again, he's showing the scale here. He had the faraway shot of them against the mountains. It's fucking amazing. (laughs) Movies have never looked this good. Honest to God. The score is also very minimal. Oh, boy. But it kicks in. It seems like this, and it's an emotional swell that, for me, really works out. See, I think this is one of James Warner's lesser scores. I do not like this score one bit. There's one piece that's okay, but I think the main piece... And everything else. I know he worked really hard on this. He said he worked three years straight, being up from 4 a.m. to 10 p.m. working on it. And I tell you, I don't like this score. It doesn't resonate with me at all. And I love James Horner. Hell, go back to Titanic. I love the Titanic score. Even though Celine Dion tried her best to overplay it, I do really like that score. And James Horner, again, Aliens, an amazing score. He has done some great scores in the past, but this, it's not as bad as his Amazing Spider-Man score, but it's not very high up there. God bless the man. I'm not a fan of it. Matt, you be the tiebreaker. Oh, boy. This is a rare instance where I side with Garrett on music. Wow. This is, uh, speaking of first-time things, took 12 years, much like this movie, for me to do with Garrett on a musical composition. I like that 
like Adam said, though, that this is not a score that feels the need to kick in every five minutes. He saves it for the right instances in the movie. But if you notice, it's only the scenes on Pandora when he's in the Avatar. He holds back when it's all the stuff on Earth. I think that's deliberate. I don't think it's wrong. I think it plays well because this is like his rite of passage. All it takes is a white man sticking his dick where it doesn't belong for... But I'm also like, this is where it gets frustrating. It's like, okay, the Navi have been here for centuries and none of them thought of this. Yeah. And as soon as she says, oh, my grandfather was the only one who knew how to train it, you knew exactly where this was going to go. You know, one thing about Cameron's movies in the past, I wouldn't say they were too suspenseful, but this is predictable from the moment it starts. And Cameron's movies in the past were never like that for me. Well, I would say you said they're not suspenseful. The last hour of Titanic is nothing but suspense. Absolutely. But that's also yeah. a movie where you know exactly what's going to happen. I think that's an instance where, even though it's predictable, I'm with those characters, as broadly drawn mm-hmm. as they are. They are as tunish mm-hmm. in some instances, as the ones that are in this movie, but it plays as this operatic sort of tragedy, mm-hmm. which this one is trying to do. It's trying to go for those big beats. But when the character, especially your main character is as the pen that is sitting on my desk uh, more personality than Sam Worthington does. It's a detriment to the movie. And I, look, I don't think Kevin Costner is the greatest actor in the world, but he's serviceable in Dances with Wolves. And Tom Cruise in The Last Samurai, Last Samurai he's very charismatic. Mm-hmm. I think it's bullshit they become the greatest samurai on the planet. Uh, <laughs> but this is a great scene. The, the music outside of this is one of his, I think it also is one of his lesser scores. We're seeing more teachings with Jake and Natiri as there's another montage of him learning the ropes, so to speak. We are then hearing about the Tree of Souls, which is the Navi's most sacred place, and Grace asks for samples from it. Meanwhile, Jake and Natiri, they're attacked by another flying creature, and they fly through some vines and lose it, and this will come into play later on. And I will say this, I did kind of love, well, love is kind of a strong word. I was engaged by this love story between Jake and Natiri. Again, not unpredictable, but I I did like how the more she teaches him, the more he fell in love with her. And the story between these two works, and that's not a compliment to Worthington as much as it's a compliment to Zaldana. Uh, it's it's, It's so overly telegraphed, but I think it works entirely because two reasons. One, Zoe Zaldana, and two... We know the Sam Worthington character doesn't have a mean bone in his body, but if he does, they're broken mm-hmm. in his legs because we don't see them yeah. and they don't work. So I don't think there's ever a moment where you think he'll side with the humans or, or the, the military complex. There's never that sense of doubt or real bribery. Because as soon as they say, we'll get you your legs back, he could do the thing of, I lied. The doctor never cleared it. So never for a moment did I think that was a possibility. Do we ever have a name for the military complex in this movie? Because the Star Wars has the Rebels and the Empire. The, you know, we have all those, but... The RDA? RDA. Adam, what about you, sir? Love story. It's there. I mean, I don't think there's any question from the first time they meet that they're going to fall in love. But like so many other things, it's a good thing she's eight feet tall because she's carrying Sam Worthington across her shoulders. Wow, that's a great way of putting it. We then hear a journal entry with Jake proclaiming he barely remembers his old life, so he's basically becoming a Navi without realizing it. This would matter if we ever saw him willingly give all this information over to what's his name. Like, there was a quick scene of him, like, explaining the tree. Well, whatever. They already had a 3D model of the tree. If Mm -hmm. we would have seen some video, and it could have been a 30-second montage, but if we would have seen him, oh, strike this, 
hit this year, but we don't get any of that part of it. So him being like, oh, my God, I'm so conflicted. It's fucking robotic. This love story, though, it's the exact same problem, or not exact, but it reminds me so much of the Anakin Padme thing. Oh, my God, what have I done? Yeah, I did all these horrible things. Oh, that's okay. People lose their temper from time to time because that justifies committing genocide. I'll save my comments. <laughs> Another conversation between Kwawich and Jake has Kwawich saying to prepare for the shit fight that's coming and that he got approval for getting Jake's legs back. We're seeing Jake and Nateri place war paint on each other and Jake be accepted into the tribe. So I have a question. The movie may have addressed this, and this is not me being an asshole. Why exactly, knowing he's an avatar, are they so willing to let him into the tribe? That stuck in my craw watching it this time. They know that this is just a hollow shell. In fact, they call it out. They know it's a fake body. So this part of it doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you're going deep into it, other than... I'm assuming this exact same thing happened in Dances with Wolves, that he gets accepted into a tribe, probably almost directly. But it would have almost been nice to see this clan have some of the experiences with these avatars over years, or even some early versions of them. Because it's clearly they know that these people are just inhabiting robots, essentially. See, and I was always under the impression that they didn't know. You're saying they did? How would the oh, Nazi yeah, they, know that yeah. he... Because this movie establishes, I mean, the sequel's going to retcon this, that there's really only one civilization. Okay. And to answer the Dances with Wolves question, the difference is that in Dances with Wolves, he is, the Kevin Costner character, is that he's an honored guest, is what they refer to him as. He's basically their interpreter. There's never a moment where they induct him into the tribe. And uh, and Last Samurai, I don't know, Tom Cruise barely passed the, you must be this tall entrance to become a (laughs) skeleton. Even the creatures have different, they have different numbers of digits. If you notice, like Sam Worthington, like they got five fingers, where the Navi only have four. I did notice that. Oh, I'm sure Quentin Tarantino noticed that on the foot shot. (laughs) (laughs) Jake then bonds with the Tree of Souls. He hears children laughing and is then told that he can choose a woman. And, of course, he chooses Natiri, and she proclaims that they are mated for life. I really wish they cut to, like, a picture of, like, Scarlett Johansson. Or... <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm like, okay, you're sexually attracted to her? I mean, I, I guess, you know, you do you, but uh, James Cameron must have some. I don't want to know what happens in that man's mind. Oh, God, could you imagine? He must think Mystique is, like, the hottest thing on the planet, then. <laughs> I mean, that Rebecca Romaine version. I'll doubt Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like even I go, I think you know maybe, but the trees are getting taken out, and Natiri cannot shake Jake's avatar awake. But he gets put back under after getting a bite to eat, and then tries getting them to stop. They don't, so he hops on the bulldozer and takes out the cameras. And dare I say, over an hour and a half into this movie, we finally get a semi-action scene. <laughs> Yes, we've had flying lessons and fighting lessons, but one thing Cameron was so good at in the past was getting the adrenaline pumping. Here we are. I'm finally in the midst of Jake being the center of danger with his bulldozer taking out the Navi habitat, and I'm not invested. I'm engaged, but far from pumped like something like Terminator 2 or, hell, even True Lies. This comes way too little too late for me. There should have been something else that happens before this. I would have expected them to fire some kind of a warning shot before this. Yeah. But then again, this movie has the subtlety of a sledgehammer. Because I was watching this, I was like, who does Stephen Lang remind me of? And I'm like, I got it. Vince McMahon. Oh, shit. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> you are so right. Oh, my God. 
I don't know about you. I mean, you're, you're engaged in this, right? Did, did you think there should have been an action scene before this? I'm glad been enough with his learning the way of the Navi and those montages and them climbing up to battle the Banshee that I didn't realize that they weren't battling the RDA and the humans until this happened. And from here on out, we almost go action from here till the end. We get a couple breaks in between, but we kind of just start really running downhill from here. Boy, Adam Spray is certainly bonded with this movie, yeah, isn't it? Oh. Matt? It's helpful to <laughs> that the year, this this fierce group of warriors. As soon as one missile comes, they all run away. I get it, Probably. you know, it's sort of the Admiral Akbar thing of we can't withstand power of that magnitude or whatever. But I think that at the very least, they would stand their ground against the most sacred item in their culture. Yeah. You know what sucks is they did, and it was cut out. Really? Yep. So there's a scene, and whether it's collectors or extended edition, because there's Fucking three. I don't know the difference between them. Like there's like eight versions. Yep. Um, <laughs> I know. But it shows the result of this right here. And it's why he goes and gets Jake specifically. Because the war party, or I guess it's right after this, where they say, hey, we're going to attack back is the result of this. And they show this mass casualties of the Navi attacking. And they've taken out like six, eight of these bulldozers and giant machines. And, oh, they killed humans as well. And so there's an escalation from their end as well as to what's going on. All that is completely cut out of what's in the theatrical version. See, it's so funny that these changes sound so, well, layman, they sound so minor, but it's crucial context for them. And, like, James Cameron, of all people, should know better, because he's the guy who went to the length of editing a frame out of every second of Terminator 2 to show how to shave off 10 minutes off a runtime. You would think he would be better to, to leave these vital, on the surface, minuscule scenes, but really they're the crucial bits I need to be with this movie. And it gave a little bit more to Rabizi's character as well, because Stephen Lang's at least going to say, look, they just killed six humans. We got to do something. And he's like, fine, go attack home tree. It still doesn't excuse it, but you could see where the push is coming from. Rawlich sees that it was Jake who took out the cameras, and we cut to the Navi declaring war. It comes out that Natiri and Jake have mated, and I love Grace's reaction to this. She's just like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and the only times I actually bust out a giggle in this. Krawitz takes out Grace, and Jake is about to say why he was sent there before he's taken out of hibernation as well. And then Krawitz tells Grace to shut her pie hole as she explains the connections the trees have with each other, which has formed a sort of global network. Could Parker be any more mustache trolley? This Rabisi character. <laughs> no, I, I wish he was more mustache twirly. He's not evil enough. He's not evil enough, but it's just like every time he's on screen, he thinks he is. He, yeah, you know? but play it one way or the other. Either we need a scene of Stephen Lang in his quarters completely emasculating Rabisi, or he needs to be just this overall big bad. He's unobtaining the, what he needs to get in his character. Jeez. Oh, boy. <laughs> Must be getting yeah, late. Yeah, that is a stretch as tall as a Navi. <laughs> they find a journal where Jake proclaims everything he's been sent here to do has been a waste of time. Qualwich, meanwhile, says that he will try to do it humane with gas at first before Parker says to go ahead and just pull the trigger. Jake tells the Navi that they have to leave or they'll die. And Jake says the real reason he was sent here. So it's all been coming out right now. And this makes Natiri lose all her trust in him. And again, I was about ready to praise her performance, but we've done that a lot. <laughs> 
Meanwhile, the war vehicles show up, and the war is on. They fire a ton of rounds into the Tree of Souls as arrows are sent their way. And one thing Cameron wisely does here is a lot of shots from the inside the cockpit. I always like when directors do this, especially in 3D movies, as it gives a neat little POV of what's going on from the pilot's perspective. And he does it here and in the final battle a lot. And I kind of like that. Yeah, I agree. It also shows the detail that they put in these, yes. you know, making these machines. He does a good well with it. But yeah, you're exactly right. That depth of field between where they're standing on the bridge of this thing and the tree, mm-hmm. it really comes through. Missiles are being sent by everyone except Trudy, who turns off her missiles and just simply says, I didn't sign up for this shit, so she's out. And in some very vivid imagery that has a lot of 9-11 hints, the Tree of Souls falls by the wayside. And Cameron said he didn't really, he really realize he was doing this until he was doing the edit, and then he looked at this, he was like, oh shit. <laughs> like, I never got that, you're right. And they treat it so tragically, too. Are you saying that Sam Worthington melted steel beams? And this is the one piece of music I kind of liked from Horner as he does a good job of illustrating the tragedy of what has happened with his symphonic illustrations and these uh, these chants in the background. This one time I'll praise the score is right here. I guess I'm immature because every time I hear them say home tree, I giggle. Because I think of like, you know, when you're six years old playing tag. Home slice. <laughs> nice. Natiri is told to protect the people as... Who is this? Her, her his, father. This is her... Oh, this is yeah, her that's, father. Uh, what's his name? Okay. Wes, uh, Wes Studi. Okay. All right. She tells Jake to get away and never come back. Parker says to pull the plug, and there's a fight in the war room. So this is Parker's uh, reversal character. Trudy shows up to rescue Jake and Grace as they make their way through the base. But Quawich gets wind of what's going on, and he masks up to go after them. They take off and find out that Grace has been hit. Hey, they look, take care of. Go ahead. Look, you shot somebody in the stomach. What is possibly going to happen? Right. <laughs> now, this is a world where nobody knows how to aim for the head. They take care of her as they go deeper into the mountains toward the Tree of Souls. Jenk leaks up, and he awakens to once again see the devastation that was caused by the missiles. He takes off on his banshee and heads down to link up with the creature that attacked him earlier. We then cut to a ritual that the Navi are having as Jake heads down, and there's a reunion between him and Natiri. And then the rest of the tribe, they proclaim their loyalty to him, and they bring Grace to the tree to try to cure her. It doesn't work, though, and she ends up dying. I did not expect Sigourney Weaver to die in this movie when I first saw it. Nope, I didn't either. I didn't call this either, but I also didn't call, oh, fuck, there's still an hour left of the movie. (laughs) I know! (laughs) I was like, oh, my God, there's more? (laughs) There are some instances where you're like, okay, you could cut this off now. Nope! (laughs) Jake gives a speech that pumps up the Navi, saying it's our land, and flies off with Natiri. This is really where you need an actor who can draw you in. Oh, my God, you're right. Worthington is awful at this. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day! Right? Get Bill Pullman, for Christ's sake. And I will say, you know, Cameron is doing quite the job of building this battle up, this final battle. I mean, we're seeing what Jake is accomplishing, as well as cutting to Quawich giving his own speech of fighting terror with terror. This is all quite a build-up here. But the thing is, if you're going to build this up, you have to pay this off. Yeah. Well, James Cameron, if there's anything he does know how to do, it's these big action sequences. But again, I never feel like the Navi are evenly matched. It's the fucking Ewok problem. I was going to say, this is like the Ewok. I kind of wish, I don't know, were, were Wookiees uh, not on speed dial? They're not next door? <laughs> what, what I do what, what I do like what we see here as well is, because he's sitting up on the human side, preparing them for war. We do see here that there's so many more Navi than we've seen here at the tree. That we get a quick visit to, yeah. you know, a couple others, and suddenly we're like, oh, shit. There's a lot more of this world than we've even seen so far. 
which for somebody who's just yeah. like, oh, fuck, we got to go to some more places. But it's, it lets us know that this isn't just a one type of terrain in this planet, Moon. That's a good point. Meanwhile, Jake gets an update from Max, and with Qualich on his way, Jake still has the confidence that their numbers will give them the home field advantage. He promises the tree that he will fight for their memory, and then the vehicles are away, the creatures are flying, and here we are, folks. The final battle is on with a half hour to go. Qualich says that he wants to be home for dinner, and they start bringing the pain. It's a gorgeous battle. I love seeing the horse creatures run through the water, and then the creatures themselves throwing the ships around. Those were some cool shots, again, especially in 3D. Are you engaged by this battle, Adam? When this turns up, and it's funny, it reminds me of Endgame, where you're like, what the fuck are they going to do for the last 40 minutes? Are they just going to cut? Nope, they're going to show the entire thing. And I'll give credit. We get a battle for the next 35 minutes nonstop. But when we're watching the Banshees take out some of these helicopters or reach in with its beak and, like, rip people out from inside these choppers, I think that's pretty awesome. Watching it at home, the scale does not work as well as it does in the theater. But it's impressive to see them all come together, to watch all the Ekrons swoop down. <laughs> it pisses me off that you bring up fucking Ewoks, because now I am thinking of fucking Return of the Jedi. Going against the military-industrial complex with natives. But I think the battle's beautifully shot. It's amazing how seamless this is. You don't see yeah. the scenes. You don't see the map paintings. You don't see the lines. I mean, you feel like... This is really going on, and it's a testament 13, 14 years later that it still looks as good. Yeah, it, it looks great, and this is, this movie also shows the importance of a good color palette, because Endgame, yeah. Yeah. fucking gray, it's dark, everything's all muted, it looks like a, like, I thought Zack Snyder came in to direct the last yeah. part of Endgame, to be yeah. perfectly honest. You see everything here. Yeah, here you see everything, you know, it's clear as day. Bright blue sky, bright blue army. I'd love to see the clean version of this where people are, like, getting thrown out of helicopters. And, yeah. like, do they do it at the A-team where they land on mats? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Trudy gets taken out. She'll get amnesia in the next movie and she'll come back. Uh, <laughs> That's what you do for family. Because, I mean, look, let's, let's remember. Someone clearly dies in this movie and they're coming back for the next yeah, they're coming back as a kid in the next one. Hey. We'll get to that at the end of this. The battle rages on as Jake takes out a ship, and Atari is rescued by a couple creatures. But we know what this is leading up to. Jake takes down Qualrich's ship, and he lands to put Natiri in peril and set up a massive final battle between Jake and Qualrich. After trying to take out where he's plugged in, the battle ensues, and as Qualrich has Jake on the other end of a knife, Natiri fires two arrows right into his chest and takes him out. It still looks great. It's amazing how... It does. It's- the yeah. depth in 2D with these mm-hmm. ass arrows, because this is the 3D. I remember how far these arrows fucking stuck out in 3D. But even in 2D, they still, it's, it, God damn, he shoots it well. Cinematographer mm-hmm. really deserves an immense amount of credit for how this is done. However, Jake is without a mask, and we didn't really mention that earlier. You're on this planet. It's a different environment. It's a different atmosphere. You need a mask in order to breathe on this place. As a non-Navi here, Jake is pretty vulnerable on Pandora. So now... Qualrich takes off his mask, and he's breathing in the Pandora air, so Natiri grabs a mask and rescues him. And you knew this plot device was coming back, 
But I, I like the way Cameron does bring it back. It's pretty suspenseful here. It, he spends so much time on It's a little moment, but it matters throughout this entire movie. We keep seeing him with the mask. And even earlier, when they're escaping, and Clark kicks open the door, and everybody inside rushes to put a mask on, there's a woman in the back who looks like she's, like, flexing. Looks like she's flexing her arms. That's the military symbol for NBC, gas, 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 nuclear, biological, chemical, which is a physical hmm. motion that says, hey, we're under chemical attack, put on your gas mask. That little detail popped me so fucking hard because I had to do drills and trainings <laughs> of putting on chemical weapon gear with that, putting on my gas mask. So little background details, he filters all the way through. But this end moment where that mask and the Terry's looking for him, I'm not going to lie. This fucking touched me. Really? Yep. When he finally comes, the mask is on, he hits it, and it always takes a moment. It's not instant, which is kind of cool. And they still get that giant size difference. And we don't see the difference in plates as they fucking built it together. And, and he's laying across her lap. He's this eight, ten-foot-tall being. Something in the way that that is done and what she's got on her face when she says, I see you, just really fucking works for me. They both say, I see you, and we get a wrap-up. Only a few of the humans were chosen to stay. And Jake says that this is his last video log as he's not coming back to this place. We cut to a ceremony of, I'm guessing, making Jake a Navi permanently? Or a permanent part of the tribe. Not sure exactly what's going on here. As we get a close-up of Datiri kissing Jake the human and Jake the Navi waking up as credits roll on Avatar. Any thoughts on those final scenes, boys? That's a risky thought when you just saw Sigourney Weaver die not too long before. That's a big risk right there you're, you're putting. That's a lot of faith in AWA. Matt? I was just happy it was over. <laughs> my legs were as numb as Sam Worthington's by the time this movie was done. <laughs> Jesus. All right. Scale of 1 to 10. What do we give Avatar? Let's start with the positive first. Adam, you go ahead. I thought you were going to say Matt. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> you can positive here. There's no doubt I'm a fan of Avatar. I mean, it came that honest right off the bat. I really enjoy being in this world. I enjoy the performances in this movie outside of Sam Worthington. The script... James Cameron wrote a great story, and he wrote some pretty horrendous dialogue. But the script is not the star of this movie. Sam Worthington isn't the star of this movie. Pandora is. And other than that, I would say Zoe Saldana is. And they absolutely steal the show. I'm engaged in this movie every time I've seen it. And I see it probably every year to year and a half, whether I want to put it on while I'm doing something or on TV. Even this time, when I'm sitting down watching it, Paying attention for this, and I took notes of stuff that I really disliked, which are pretty poorly done, but I'm still engaged with what's going on. The at-home viewing experience is nowhere near what the theater experience was, but that theater experience got digital screens everywhere. You know, the way that The Phantom Menace did, this kind of finished the job. This movie was the last THX home video release. And to me, that says something, too. That was it. Because the last thing THX did was worked on Avatar for home release. It's a triumph of vision and of sound. But the script has some work to be done. The characters do have some work to be done. I'm going to be very excited to go back to this world soon. I hope I can stay as engaged. I'm worried that I won't be. I'm worried that it's going to let me down. But we'll see where it goes. But when this is on, I'm going to sit and watch it. I'm going to enjoy it. So if Saldana is top fucking notch. Every time she yells, every time she cries and yells out, I feel that same passion coming out of a fucking animated, for the most part, CG-realized character. She brings that much to it. Yeah, 
there's issues with it. Yes, the story is partially derivative of other things, but you know what? Y'all ain't seen original movies in fucking theaters nowadays, but I do think that this thing is an absolute triumph to behold. And even with the issues that it has, I have a really good time with it. Avatar is a solid 8 on 10 for me. 8 on 10 from Adam Bunch. Matt, as the person who hasn't seen this, like me, since it was out, how are you scoring this? I have to score this on my own personal sensibilities. For anyone that's been listening to this show, as long as Garrett and I have been doing it, you'll find that I'm a story guy first and foremost. That's what I put the most stock into as a film fan. Uh, the, the comparison I'll use, and this is someone I'd really love to talk about, we kind of teased it on the last Airbender show, ironically, was Miyazaki. He is absolutely a visual storyteller through animation. But when a movie is pure eye candy or groundbreaking in a visual way without a, a story to ground it, like Spirited Away is a great example, where there's some imagery in that movie and some conceptual stuff like the cat bus that I think is something to behold. But the reason why I don't consider that movie to be one of my favorite Miyazaki films, even though it's almost everyone else's favorite, is not because I'm a Garrett and like to be the contrarian. It's just because I don't connect with it on a a character level or story level. It's too abstract. And I have to use a similar critique to Avatar, where there is only so much I can get out of now in a home experience, watching something that is predominantly focused on the technology. There are some things outside of that that I like. Don't get me wrong. But I expect if you're going to be this groundbreaking, I do need something better than a subpar script, subpar characters, some cringeworthy dialogue. That's just the type of cinema that I like to go see. Now, I understand, Garrett, we've talked about this for years, that there are plenty of dumb movies that I like. Some that are just what you would call dumb action movies. Like, I fucking love Commando. But Commando's not two hours and 40 minutes long. <laughs> I just think there's a, there's a lot of stuff that I, at the end of the day, can't be on board with between a long runtime and, and characters that are purely archetypes. I, I just think there there's a lot left to be desired. And I hold James Cameron to a higher standard as a storyteller because you don't really get to know the characters in Aliens, like Burke, Hudson, Hicks, Vasquez, Bishop. You don't really get to know their backstories and stuff, but goddamn, you know who those characters are through their interactions and through their distinct personalities. I don't get that here. And like I said, when I look at contemporary stuff around this time, blockbusters have gotten a lot smarter. They've gotten a lot more sophisticated in their screenwriting. And I can't wait to talk about some of that next year when we get into Star Wars, because I have plenty to say on that front. This, for me, as a score, I can't go too low. But I also can't go anywhere near as high as Adam because I appreciate the world, but I'll go and rent a hotel. I'm not going to buy a house there, to use that analogy. So I'm going to land on pretty much the same score I had when I walked out of the theater. This is a, it's a five on ten. I highly respect what it does as groundbreaking cinema, but I can't say I like it, if that makes any sense. Man, I was not expecting you to go that low. I gotta be honest. But I gotta say, Matt, after five weeks of not recognizing the other person on the inner end of this call, it's nice to finally be on the same wavelength as you. I wish 
I love this movie as much as I was hoping to when it was coming out. I remember seeing James Cameron on 60 Minutes. He had broken the geek wall and he was going to other things and, tr- and making this as contemporary as he could because he needed this to make as much money as it could. And he was going on 60 Minutes. He was going on all these shows promoting it. And I was so excited. And I remember walking out there thinking, oh, my God. But then it got me thinking, of all the James Cameron movies in the past, like what would have happened if he hadn't cast Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator? What would have happened if he hadn't cast Linda Hamilton in Terminator? What would have happened if he didn't have Jamie Lee Curtis in True Lies? There are so many things that he did right in those movies that made him work as well as they did. I feel like if everything of this movie that he got right, it was all technology-based. But with the exception of Zoe Zaldana and on a, to a lesser extent Sigourney Weaver, I said I do like her performance. This movie is so hard to get through. It took me three sittings to get through this movie for this podcast. Now, that is because sometimes I'll pause it and I'll jot down notes, and it's a longer viewing experience than if I were to just watch it normal. But it was so hard to get through this. And being immersed in the world, I'll use the analogy analogy again. On Disney+, Plus, there are so many National Geographic documentaries you can go through, and they're beautiful to look at, but I need something to happen. I can't just look at them. And in this movie, I was begging something that ha- for something to happen besides a love story that worked because of the female and uh, just a terrible leading man performance. I mean, the casting of the leading man is so imperative to this story. And the fact that he is back in this new movie really gives me a lot of fright in my eyes about what I'm about ready to go see. But on the other end, James Cameron is a different filmmaker in 2009. And we're seeing that. We're seeing a lot more of his non-mean sensibilities come out as we're watching this. And we're going to talk about that when we get to Spielberg and Indiana Jones next year and Lucas with Star Wars next year. There are times when those are two different filmmakers doing different films and they are not feeling the same. And I feel this is a different filmmaker in 2009 than he was in 1991. He's a lesser of a tyrant, but and his vision is so great on the screen. I cannot endorse enough if you have a chance to see this on a big screen take advantage of that because it is gorgeous to see but i cannot endorse a movie like this that doesn't have a great story but at the same time i cannot put down a movie that looks this great so where do i go with it i will go between you two i will give this a six because i think it is something to see especially if you have a big system you have a big tv put this on and be immersed in it just turn off your phone turn everything off and go with it but goddamn, it is so tough (laughs) if you're not ready for what you're going to see because you've seen everything before and that's the other thing is you've seen all this before how Cameron pulls this off is remarkable technology wise but not story wise which leads me to the next movie we're going to watch and when I told Jen that you know we're going to have a date night coming up and it's going to be to go see the new Avatar I gotta say she wasn't too excited and after watching this movie for this podcast I can't say I'm too excited either Matt how much are you looking forward to the next movie now that we're finally getting it so my enjoyment now is contingent upon if Adam's prediction of Zoe Zaldana being nuked is yeah. true Because if that happens in the first act, I am going to be clenching my fist and tapping my foot in anticipation of leaving that theater if I have to watch just Sam Worthington and jump. If that is different, and that is not meant to be, and now I start to get more and more cautious as I think about it, I will say this. It looks like there is far less emphasis on the humans and the military-industrial complex and it seems like now we're going to see a different tribe. You know, it's expanding the world. Maybe we go from Dances with Wolves to Transformers, where it's the Autobots versus the Decepticons. But I'm willing to give this the benefit of the doubt, because there's one thing James Cameron does. He listens to his detractors. Maybe he wrote a much better script. Maybe he wrote something that is really rich in character and theme. 
And Kate Winslet's in it, which excites me. Yeah. That's something that, you know, that's a reunion I've, I've wanted to see, someone I've wanted to see him work with again. Has Sam Worthington learned how to act in the 13 years since this came out? I wouldn't bet on it, but who knows? So I'm excited to see it because of going back into a theater to watch this. I'll do the full IMAX 3D. I'll put over the extra money to do it because I think it warrants it. But if it sucks, then, you know, it is what it is. But the biggest thing that scares me is three hours and ten minutes. That's even the great movies. Not going to espouse them here because we'll probably cover them someday. But we've talked about even a movie like The Dark Knight. 20 minutes of that movie you can get rid of, and it actually hurts the movie, honestly. But but we'll see. I've been wrong before, but, God, if I have to watch Sam Worthington for three hours, I'm just going to... I'm going to pull the plug and call it a mercy killing. <laughs> Adam, as the big endorser of this film, do you think Cameron can top himself? I hope so, but, no. I'm fairly trepidated just going into it. The one thing that I have some confidence in is that it's focusing on water and that aspect of, of the Pandora moon. And we know how much James Cameron loves water. He loves diving. He loves going under the sea. He's built fucking submarines just to travel and dive. So I'm hoping he brings that passion, and I hope that translates to the screen. Like Matt said, God, I hope that I'm not about to watch three hours of fucking Sam Worthington <laughs> try to carry a movie because he can't. And I will be really pissed if that's what happens. I saw the first trailer they put out, not watching any others. I got no desires to watch any others. I'm not looking out TV spots or any news because I don't need to. So I'm hopeful. I'm also not paying attention to the stories you're starting to see going, Avatar must make $2 billion to make back its budget. Shut the fuck up. You have no idea what amortizing cost obviously means because they did mm -hmm. not create new technology. And it's not just going to be considered the cost of one fucking film. I mean, I, I hate that stuff because it's such clickbait crap to try to put negative thoughts out there already. And that's not how these costs work, especially when some of these technologies Disney is going to use in movies, in TVs, and in theme parks. So shut the fuck up. It's <laughs> just not reality. I hope it's good, but I don't know. Hope in one hand and shit in the other and see what fills up first. I will never bet against James Cameron until he proves me wrong. And every time I do... He tops himself, so my expectations are metered, but we'll see. I'm going to be there probably Thursday on preview night. Dolby Digital powered recliners, and I'm hoping he wows me. All right, so tune in next week when we cover Avatar 2, The Way of Water. And until next week, sometimes your whole life boils down to one insane podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. This is a place for prayers to be heard and sometimes answered. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. Join us next week for an entirely new review. It is hard to fill a cup which is already full. The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. This is our fortress. Edited by Garrett. A warrior of the Jarhead clan. Voiceovers by Adam. And I have the right to speak.
the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. And that's how you scatter the roaches. Meet out of here. Avatar, released December 25th, 2004. Budget $110 million. Box office $213.7 million. This uh, is directed billion. by Martin Scorsese. Oh, that's my The Aviator notes. <laughs> Hold on, let me. I've been holding on to that joke since we did that series. All right. <laughs> there we go. All right. The real one here. Avatar. Being that we just ah, fucking scrapped that part. Um, you know, with with a sequel coming out, with the sure as heck did not see this opening weekend. Oh wow! <laughs> the reason is at this point, people. <laughs> I had a child that was because because this was what eighty nine or sorry eighty eighty nine eighty nine. Way way too deep in James Cameron here. <laughs> uh, phrasing, um, but no, oh nine. That's that, that insert woman here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but 2009. If there's a weak link in this movie, other than tropes, it lies at Sam Worthington's incapable acting skills. Isn't it amazing that this guy apparently was relatively close to being James Bond? Was he really? I talked about this on the uh, the Casino Royale show. He auditioned for for the Daniel Craig era. Wow. And imagine how different history would be if they picked Sam Worthington. Yeah, we would that would have been have, one and done. He would have been one and done and never seen again. Ugh. So we're hearing about the fact that his brother Tommy was shot while on duty and his mission was reserved for him. But, uh, but uh, what's his name? I'm Jay. sorry. Jay. Jay. Okay. Okay, but Jake, we then meet helicopter pilot Trudy, played by Michelle Rodriguez. It makes sense, because this movie is ultimately about him. Damn it! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, I keep trying to forget that series. Well, we're covering the new one next year, so you better cover up quick. But I I think she's fine in this. I like her in this, too. She fits this character beautifully, actually. Yeah, I mean, she's Vasquez Jr. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. That's true. <laughs> There's another movie that she did with Sigourney Weaver called The Assignment. Oh, my oh God, my God that was awful. <laughs> the thing is, I got sent the graphic novel that it's based on. The only thing worse than that graphic novel is that film. Yeah, that was oh the that, that Walter Hill had his brain sucked out by aliens. Oh, my God, Walter Hill did yeah, that? Yeah, so the, the crux of that movie, just because it's connected, is that Michelle Rodriguez is – Gender swapped against her will. Yeah, to become a woman. So some, a man becomes Michelle Rodriguez, and Sigourney Weaver is the main villain. It is poor Sigourney. It is, it is schlock of the of the highest order. But it, 
And if you're if you're someone who's transgender, you want Walter Hill's head on a platter. Oh, it is so offensive in that way. Yeah, it's, it's, she's a it's like a bounty she hunter. She turned down Aliens versus Predator, but she did that shit. <laughs> yeah, she did, uh, she did the Defenders, and I can't defend that. Uh, yeah, well, and, and it's also like it didn't get a big release. Like it was a straight to video movie, basically. I never saw it, so yeah. And I'm a big Sigourney Weaver fan. Yeah, well, she also she's also at this point in her life where she's coming back. Yeah, you know, she's coming back to Ghostbusters. Yeah. If if they do make another Alien movie, I guarantee you she'll come back. They gotta yep. try to get her for the show. Yeah, they're gonna, they're gonna be like, all right, how much money is it gonna take for you to come back? <laughs> Meanwhile, Michelle Rodriguez is like, I'm not coming back to Avatar. A, you kill me off, and B, <laughs> I am making so much. Oh, she was in Alita. She has a camp. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so it goes full circle. She's made so much goddamn money off those Fast and Furious movies. She never has to work again in her life. She lives to pay nope. like five generations of her kids through college. <laughs> And I guess this could be classified as bonding, as he makes fun of the Avatar program and asks Jake to be a spy on the inside. The only thing that would have made this more homoerotic is if they were playing volleyball. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, you brought the lines today, boy. (laughs) What happens when you have kids if you need to hype yourself up like caffeine before you record so you don't pass out? (laughs) I would have been as monosyllabic as Sam Worthington if I did otherwise. They walk around the jungle, and non-aggressive prolomeres come into view. Is that what they're called, prolomeres? Yeah, yeah, those uh, those creatures roaming around. Non-aggressive prolomeres come into view. Yeah, she's fine in Star Trek. I agree. She's she's okay. Oh, maybe Chris Pine could have been Sully. Huh. Ooh, I'm I'm thinking of... Yeah, you're right. No, that's and Bruce well, Reed should have been the Giovanni Ribisi character. Yeah, there we go. Um, I don't know. The Sully doesn't cry, and I don't think Chris Pine makes a movie where he doesn't shed a tear. <laughs> um. Yeah, we'll see. Meanwhile, Jake's team gives up looking for him as Jake gathers what is his honey. What? It, oh, God damn. It gathers. Oh, that's right. So, I'm sorry. Meanwhile, Jake's team gives up looking for him as. All right. So, tune in next week when we cover. Avatar, what is it? The Way of the Water? What do they call it? The Way of Water. The Way of Water, okay. Ooh, uh.